This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. We're back. Another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I'm Kevin Kautzman here in St. Paul, Minnesota, joined by my partner in crime, Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Kevin. Uh, ready to, uh, I, I, I get to be on the receiving end. Sure. So I'm, I'm the fish, I'm the, what is it, fish out of water, new guy in town, whatever that narrative technique is, I'm that guy. So that's always fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're the guy yeah. who uh, strolls into the biking bar and starts to hit on the boss's daughter. <laughs> well, no, is... I don't want to be that guy. That's a, that sounds terrible. <laughs> nope, that's you today, Brad. <laughs> All right, this is All where right. we are today, too, fellas. That's okay. the, that's the thing. Okay, that's All right. it, All right. and that is friend uh, of the show, poet Jason Gallagher. Brad, you want to introduce Jason? Yeah, Jason Gallagher, for people who've been listening for a while, Jason joined us on the episode we did about the life and work of uh, John Berryman. Um, he's here today to help us with Charles Bukowski, which you, you know, we know where are, you know, we're talking about that if you've clicked on the link. Um, Jason is a poet who's had work in a number of literary journals. Um, he teaches English at Maryville University and the University of Missouri-St. Louis, uh, where he is working on his MFA. Um, he at one time was one of the last contributing editors to the Great Evergreen Review, um, currently on the board of literary magazine Boulevard. Correct me if any of this has changed. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, to my understanding, also has... Jason, you finished... Your manuscript yes. for your collection? Yep. Excellent. Yep. Do you have a name for it? I mean, somebody might try to make you change it, but do you know what you're calling it? 
I want to change it. I don't uh, like okay. the game right now. Okay, so well, don't I'm, even tell us then. <laughs> so, yeah, that, if, I, I'm really, that's the thing that's sort of taking most of my creative time is like thinking of a new name. So that's Spike. funny. Titles are hard. Kevin and yeah. I have two totally different approaches to titles, I think, in terms of our career. It's like, for me, there's just like a moment where you're like, oh, well, that's obviously the title. Like, it just, it you struggle with it and fight with it. And then at one point, you're like, oh, how did I not figure this out six months ago? Uh, but so I wish I you luck with that. <laughs> begin if I don't have a title. Right. right the exactly. title may change, but I can't begin. Yeah. yeah interesting. Well, congratulations on finishing that, Jason. Uh, where can Thank people find you, you before we get into it? Just plug so your... So yeah. I, am, I am not on the Bird website, much to your chagrin, Kevin. <laughs> I have uh, have avoided it for about a year now, uh, but I picked up some interest on my Instagram. That's just my name backwards, Gallagher Jason, G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R, and then my first name. I've had some fans of the show actually contact me, which is exciting. Cool, so that is cool. That's you know, let's let's get started on uh, on on today's topic. Let's yeah, do oh, it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. I, we've got a lot to cover today, and yeah. we are. I'm I'm afraid we're going to be painfully, inappropriately sober. On this episode. <laughs> Speak for uh, yourself, Kevin. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. And pair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I personally, I threw some money on the ponies. I'm not going to tell you how much I lost. Mm. And I've only eaten candy bars for the past week. Uh, good. good. You're so in this is going to be, this this. Gonna be blur. this is going to be great. <laughs> uh, and of course, today, our, our subject is Charles Bukowski. I got to say, before we get into it, telegram t.me slash art of dark pod. We've got a very lively chat there. A lot of fun. Every time we drop an episode, people talk about it. But also just generally people talk about all sorts of things. That's fun. Get on the Twitter, twitter.com slash art of dark pod. Brad man's that. And of course, mm -hmm. the very best way to support this podcast, as you're just about to hear, I don't know how many hours about Charles Bukowski, mm -hmm. is patreon.com slash art of dark pod. We will promote that a little a little more in a second. Brad, as we always begin, what mm -hmm. do you know about Charles Bukowski? Uh, I know probably I know a fair amount um, American it, people generally refer to him first as a poet, but he also wrote a number of novels and other pieces of prose um, born in Germany, I want to say, but it was a sort of a military based situation, if I remember right, because he's certainly an American um, uh, affiliated with Los Angeles primarily uh, was a post he was a, either a postman or worked in the post office. I'm not sure what the difference is between those two, if there is one, uh, for a long time. Uh, didn't get recognized as a writer for a long time. Um, and I feel like, and I don't know the details of this, I feel like there was the publisher of an independent journal who kind of like put all the money on Bukowski at one point. Something like that. I don't know. I, again, I don't know the details, but I remember something like that. Um, and then Bukowski went on a series of tours and became a sort of a mini celebrity in like the last 10 years of his life, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I know. Definitely like known for like the seedy side, the seedy side cigarettes and sleeping on the floor and women and gambling and all all of that stuff. Right. 
Yeah, and I said before we started recording that on this Spakowski episode, I am prepared to acknowledge that there may be the slightest minuscule quanta uh, quantum of truth to the idea of toxic masculinity. Oh, okay. <laughs> hashtag right. toxic masculinity. Hashtag. hashtag yeah, not all poets. Uh, but you know, what's <laughs> right. very funny, you know, too, is that uh, he, he's very, very divisive. Uh, people have very strong feelings about Bukowski, certainly a bit misunderstood but also an arch obvious topic for Art of Darkness mm -hmm. and somebody yeah. who people have asked for and that it's sort of a foregone conclusion that we would cover. Mm -hmm. uh, I read an awful lot of Bukowski before, just before I had met you uh, mm. right down in grad school, so quite a while ago. So we're not um, just sort of chasing, I guess, chasing clout by doing this. Like I have a legitimate respect and admiration for Bukowski, and I would even say he, his poetry in particular influenced the way that I wrote plays in the sense that he's very very free very mm -hmm. liberated i see jason's nodding here do you, you co-sign that jason yeah absolutely i think one of the things we're going to talk about is how bukowski is unable to be easily pigeonholed amongst the major poetic movements of the mid-century like he's not what fits easily into this box or that box and a lot of it has to do with the freeness of his verse. His verse is terse. His lines are often very short. Um, and, and and I have, in my own research and reading, I sort of have my pet theory of why that is. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But Bukowski is his own poet. Um, and I find it interesting Kevin, you were talking about reading Bukowski in grad school. Um, my first go round in grad school, he was kind of a persona non grata. Um, sure. and, 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 and I don't even think it's because of sort of what we're talking about with divisiveness. I think that there was a time I did my undergrad in the early 2000s when all the male poets in my program wanted to be Charles Bukowski. And mm -hmm. I even remember one of my, um, one of my professors saying, we have to sort of find other. <laughs> uh, writers there are other poets or, guys. Right, There's other right, poets. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's not um, the only one. But yeah. I feel that in many ways, there's a little bit of, Sadness, I think, in my own sort of relationship with Bukowski because I did avoid him for a long time, not necessarily because of the baggage, but just because of what I had known from undergrad. And in all actuality, Bukowski is a great model for a lot of young poets. And that's what I find really fascinating particularly as poetry has sort of moved over the last 20, 25 years. I think that a lot of people should go back and actually read him. We can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, he's one of these people too. where you have an idea of what he is, and then you open up mm. one of the books of poetry, and you may be totally shocked by what you find. And so we'll, we'll try to give a taste of that during this episode. 
Before we do, just a, a bit of housekeeping. So prior, again, to recording, Brad and I agreed that every single subject we cover is an absolute endorsement of their entire lives. <laughs> That's super important. I'm right. kidding, of course. I don't even endorse. Uh, I only halfway endorse my own life. I don't know how many people sign on for <laughs> You know, and that shows, Brad. That comes across. You can be proud of that. That's very good. Um, and uh, yeah, but I also just... Uh, before we start talking about the Patreon and the After Dark episode, if you subscribe to the Patreon, you get an extra episode for every episode we do, another 20, 30 minutes. Before I do, uh, we just have to pause and say here on Sunday, June 18th, uh, in the foul year of our Lord 2023, we just got to give five seconds to Cormac McCarthy. Uh, yeah. All right. Now, Four this podcast... Yeah, this podcast does not ambulance chase. I've said it before. We're not going to talk about him at least until a year and a day after. We'll probably do an episode. We have the Blood Meridian special planned for December. Yeah, that was that's the, been planned for months. Yeah, yeah, with the great Aaron Gwynn, and that'll be. All the information about that is at the website and on the Patreon. We're not going to change that. We're very excited. That'll that'll probably be a little different now, maybe a little more somber, but also enthusiastic. Because what a joy to know we ha you know we have that to look forward to. And of course, Aaron Gwynn is he wrote a an obituary uh, for uh, Cormac, I think, in the Spectator. I think that's there, right, or. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if you call it an obituary, but like a he eulogized elegy. him. Yeah. An elegy. There you are. Mm -hmm. And uh so we're just very much looking forward to that. And I felt like I just had to make a little room for for Cormac. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh it's uh you speak of the the um people who, you know, Jason, you speak as a poet encountering um Bukowski and so many people you knew were trying to emulate Bukowski. For me, it wasn't everybody, but there was enough of us that were trying to be Cormac McCarthy for a while. And so, you know, losing him, it's it's tricky. You know, I, I'm not going to pour my heart out over it, but it, you know, it affected me, unlike most most passings. So the last. Yeah, the last thing we'll say about that right now is depending on how highly you rank the arts and letters and of course, on Art of Darkness, we ranked them very, very highly. It isn't just that we lost, pretty much by consensus, the greatest living American writer. We may have lost the greatest living American. Mm -hmm. One of the very short list. So just had to make room for that. And we'll, there'll be a lot more Cormac talk to come. But for now, we're going to talk about Charles Bukowski. And I got to tease the After Dark. Mm -hmm. patreon.com slash art of dark pod we put in the work these episodes don't prepare themselves there's no other show like this we are trying to get to half a crowley this year 333 patrons we're getting there everybody who signs up i literally feel like you're pulling with us when i see a sign up <laughs> seriously this is serious cool. independent media right we don't have a spotify deal we have a lot of listeners on Spotify. We don't have a deal. Nobody's mm -hmm. throwing us money. So you get a chance to do it. And on this After Dark, and we always prepare something juicy and fun for After Dark, and I've got some good stuff. So Jason and I have prepared a bit about the controversy surrounding 
Bukowski's poetry in posthumous publications and how heavily they've been edited. Oh, okay. There's something, and yeah, Jason and I are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about when he met R. Crumb, uh, which should be fun. They had a little collaboration. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about Bukowski's love of cats. He loved cats, and Mm -hmm. Jason's going to read a a Bukowski uh, cat poem. Oh, and I I don't normally prepare four topics for the after dark, but this is a big one. We're going to talk about Bukowski's FBI file. Oh, nice. I like it. Always a good one. It's on the bingo card. Mm -hmm. Put that on the bingo card. Yeah. Yeah, Both the post office and the FBI took (laughs) exception to (laughs) Hank. Uh, Now I got to mention source material. Uh, It'll be obvious when we're reading from the poems. Obviously, it's sort of like the collected works. He wrote a ton, but I've got two biographies principally. I've got this great uh, biography by... Tchaikovsky, just called Bukowski, that reads like a it reads like a novel. Uh, and then I have a bit more of an episodic biography from Howard Sounds, Charles Bukowski, locked in the arms of a crazy life. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, and with Jason's able help, he's going to be reading an awful lot of poetry, uh, and I think I might close it out with a poem. Or a poem, as they say, Brad. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. We're going to start at the end. Brad, do you know what uh, Bukowski had put on his gravestone? What's on What's on Bukowski's uh, I grave? believe it is don't try. Don't try. So mm-hmm. let's remember that as we get into the bio. Mm-hmm. All right. I have thoughts on that, but we don't have to talk about it now. Well, we'll talk about it at the end. How about mm-hmm. that? All right. So let's go. We're going to get into the biography. Henry Charles Bukowski was born Heinrich Karl Bukowski uh, in Germany on August 16th, a Leo of 1920. He was an American poet, novelist, and short story writer. His writing was influenced by the social, cultural, and economic ambiance of his adopted home city of L.A. Now, this is Wikipedia. We'll be getting into the books a bit. As Brad stated, his work addresses the ordinary lives of poor Americans the act of writing, alcohol, relationships with women, and the drudgery of work. I did mention that the FBI kept a file on him. We'll go into that further in the After Dark for Patreon. But that was a result of a column that he had uh, in an underground newspaper called Open City called Notes of a Dirty Old Man. (laughs) And uh, that that really did contribute to his fame. That got some circulation. Mm. We'll get into it. Um, just this just gives the overview here. Uh, let me see here. All right, so we've got, you know, he he was very widely published in the small literary magazines. There's a there's an excellent uh, biography of him, uh, a, a a documentary biography that you can watch after you listen to the Art of Dark uh, Darkness episode and the After Dark <laughs> called Born Into This. Have you seen that, Brad? I have seen born into this, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that would yeah. that gives you kind of a broad look at his at his stuff. That's a very good uh, documentary to watch about his life. They called him the king of the little magazines, mm-hmm. and he started publishing in the er- early 1940s, all through the 90s. He, he didn't give up on those. He kept mm-hmm. sending them out. You know, uh, he wrote thousands of poems, hundreds of short stories, and six novels, and he published over 60 books during the course of his career, which is wild. That's a lot. Yeah. 
All right, so let's get into the family and uh, early life. So he was born Heinrich Karl Bukowski in Andernach, Prussia, in Weimar, Germany. His father was Heinrich Henry Bukowski, an American of German descent, an Americaner who had served in the U.S. Army of Occupation after World War I and had remained in Germany after his army's service. His mother was Katarina. Uh, her maiden name was Fett. His paternal grandfather, Leonard Bukowski, had moved to the U.S. from Imperial Germany in the 1880s. In Cleveland, Ohio, a lot of Krauts out there, yeah. Mm. In Cleveland, Ohio, Leonard met Emily Krauss, an ethnic German, who had emigrated from Danzig uh, in Poland. Uh, they married and settled in Pasadena, California, where Leonard worked as a successful carpenter. The couple had four children, including Heinrich, this would be Hank uh, Bukowski's father, Charles, B yeah, his father. His mother, Katharina Bukowski, was the daughter of Wilhelm Fett and Nanette Israel. Now, the name Israel, and I did not know this, is widespread among Catholics, the one true faith, in the Eiffel region. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. I, that's a very curious fact. It is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bukowski assumed his paternal ancestor had moved from Poland to Germany around 1780 as Bukowski is a Polish last name. Right. As far back as Bukowski could trace, his whole family was German. And we just had a nice pop-up on the uh, arts books charts in Deutschland. So wow. hello, Deutschland. Wie geht's? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just in time for this, because mm -hmm. I know he's he's quite a figure in Germany. Is uh, he really? Okay. Mm -hmm, yeah. Bukowski's parents met in Andernach following World War I. His father was German-American and a sergeant in the U.S. Army uh, serving in Germany after the Empire's defeat. Okay. Uh, he had an affair with Katarina, a German friend's sister, and she became pregnant. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. and I assume there's some shotguns lying around mm -hmm. and uh, it being when it was... Um, you can about imagine what happened after that. Bukowski repeatedly claimed to be born out of wed wedlock, but Andernach marital records indicate that his parents married one month before his birth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got to let's go. Yeah. 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 Afterwards, Bukowski's father became a building contractor set to make a great, to make great financial gains in the aftermath of the war. And after two years, moved the family to Pfaffendorf, today part of Koblenz. However, given the crippling post-war reparations being required of Germany, which of course we know were totally just and didn't, didn't lead to any further problems, mm -hmm. uh, they were dealing with a stagnant economy and high levels in, of inflation. Hmm. Mm -hmm. He was on, hmm, rubbing my chin here. He was on <laughs> What could go wrong? Um, it, Bukowski's father was unable to make a living and decided to move the family to the U.S., uh, so in April of 1923, they sailed from Bremerhaven to Baltimore, Maryland, hmm. where they settled. Now, I've got a little bit about Hank's mother here from the Bukowski life, and that's the book I'll principally be reading from. We've got some interesting stuff here. This is quite good. Uh, I'm just going to call her Catherine. It probably would have been pronounced Katarina. Uh, Catherine rarely said much concerning growing up in Germany or about her family. Without warning, she would sometimes tell Hank random stories. One concerned her grandfather. He was an accomplished musician who drank a lot of beer 
<laughs> According to her, he went from bar to bar playing the violin, holding his hat out for tips. As soon as he had earned enough money, he stepped to the bar and began drinking. As the evening progressed, he would be thrown out of one bar for being disorderly and move on to the next and the next. Hank liked this story very much and felt sure that his great-grandfather must have been equal to Leonard Bukowski, another drinker. He began to think that the older generations of his family must have really been special. Catherine barely knew English when she arrived in the States. As Hank said in later years, my father was conqueror of her nation, a hero. In a sense, he ruled over her. Rarely, if ever, did she contradict his various edicts. Henry Bukowski didn't just beat his son as the boy grew older, but he also inflicted uh, physical punishment on his wife as, as well. So we're getting into the abuse in his childhood. He had a, he had a Dickensian isn't even a word for his childhood. Yeah. He had a torturous childhood. And that'll figure heavily in this biography and this profile that we do. When things were really tough during the Depression, Hank says, my old man would often beat my mother. I tried to stop him a few times, but then after beating away at her, he would start on me. All right. So there you go. We'll get a little bit of a taste of uh, what's to come. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, you have to imagine his mother's own childhood and how is the father is right. The father yeah. is the is the yeah. law of the house. Right. And corporal punishment was not as wildly out of line as we might think of it today. I think everyone knows this, but it's just worth restating. Right. Right. All right. And through, throughout Ham on Rye, it's really interesting because the mother will call the father daddy as hmm. the term of endearment throughout the novel. It's really difficult hmm. to read that, that novel and hear the biography because i there is such a thin veil of fictionalization within the novel that, that's hard to really separate because every single thing that you said kevin is a portion of a chapter in the first two-thirds of that novel absolutely and of course ham on rye is the autofiction biographical novel and we'll come to it very shortly we're going to read from it uh but he that was not one of his early novels and no. it does feel more mature than uh post office in fact totem and uh they do mention in born into this the documentary his wife linda i think mentions how difficult it was for him to finally arrive at the point where he could write that and ham on rye if you've not read it if you're going to read one Bukowski novel, personally, I think that's the one to read. It's, I agree. It's, yeah, because it's so it's just soaking with blood mm. uh, and and truth. Um, mm. I, I find his novels to be fun. They're fun, weird, light reads, except for Hamon Rye. Yeah. Hamon Rye is like oof, ouch. Uh, all right, so good. So they're in Baltimore. His family moved to Mid City, LA, in 1930. His father was often unemployed. And in Ham on Rye, Bukowski says that with his mother's acquiescence, his father was frequently abusive, both physically and mentally, beating his son for the smallest imagined offense. Uh, there's a passage, and I don't know if we'll come to it in Ham on Rye, but where his father would make him mow the lawn. And if there was a single blade of grass, 
out of line, he'd get a beating. His father would get on his hands and knees. And you can just imagine probably a million dollar house now in LA, but like right, 800, right. but just like a, a middle class, tiny little house in sort of central LA. And dad is on his hands and knees, you know, looking, you know, and, and is there one blade of grass? That's uh, high? Yeah, very, very heavy. Um, yeah, so he would beat him for the smallest offense. Hank would later tell in an interview that his father beat him with a razor strop three times a week from the ages of six to 11 years. Jeez. And uh, he does say that it helped his writing because well, sure. he, he came to understand undeserved pain. Oh, God. All right. And I know uh, Jason has some excerpts from Ham on Rye for us. So you want you ready with those, Jason? Yep. Get it. I like to stay in bed for hours, even during the day with the covers pulled up to my chin. It was good in there. Nothing ever occurred in there. No people, nothing. My mother after found me in bed in the daytime. Henry, get up. It's not good for a young boy to lay in bed all day. Now get up, do something. But there was nothing to do. I didn't go to bed that day. My mother was reading the note. He had just gotten in trouble for um, talking back to one of his teachers and he had sent this note home. I think he's probably in the third or fourth grade at this point mm -hmm. in the novel. Soon I heard her crying. Then she was wailing. Oh my God, you've disgraced your father and myself. It's a disgrace. Suppose the neighbors find out. What will the neighbors think? They never spoke to their neighbors. Then the door opened and my mother came running into the room. How could you have done this to your mother? The tears were running down her face. I felt guilty. Wait until your father gets home. She slammed the bedroom door and I sat in the chair and waited. Somehow, I felt guilty. I heard my father come in. He always slammed the door, walked heavily, and talked loudly. He was home. After a few moments, the bedroom door opened. He was six foot two, a large man. Everything vanished. The chair I was sitting in, the wallpaper, the walls, all of my thoughts. He was the dark covering the sun. The violence of him made everything else utterly disappear. He was his ears, nose, mouth. I couldn't look at his eyes. There was only his red, angry face. All right, Henry, into the bathroom. I walked in and closed the door behind us. The walls were white. There was a bathroom mirror and a small window. The screen black and broken. There was the bathtub and the toilet and the tiles. He reached and took down the razor stroop, which hung from a hook. It was going to be the first of many such bearings, beatings, which would occur more and more often. Always, I felt, without real reasons. All right, take down your pants. I took my pants down. Pull down your shorts. I pulled them down. Then he laid on the stroop. The first blow inflicted more shock than pain. The second hurt more. Each blow which followed increased the pain. At first, I was aware of the walls, the toilet, the tub. Finally, I couldn't see anything. As he beat me, he berated me, and I couldn't understand the words. I thought about his roses, how he grew roses in the yard. I thought about his automobile in the garage. I tried not to scream. I knew that if I did scream, he might stop. But knowing this, and knowing his desire for me to scream, prevented me. 
The tears ran from my eyes as I remained silent. After a while, it all became just a whirlpool, a jumble, and there was only the deadly possibility of forever. Finally, like something jerked into action, I began to sob, swallowing and choking on the salt slime that ran down my throat. He stopped. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for reading that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's that's plenty of ham on rye. It sounds for... like a, <laughs> it's almost like a, and this isn't meant to demean it at all. There's like a police report quality to it almost. This feels like, yeah, ugh, wow. Mm. That's a tough yeah. household. I, well, I, right. And I wonder where we're going to talk about style at some mm. point because you know there are certain benchmarks that he is aligning himself with that goes to that uh um reportage nature of a lot of of the fiction mm. well and a lot of the poetry too it's not it's not just the fiction that it, that is like that i would say that the poetry too is a very sort of um form of reportage and he's going back and forth because a lot of this material, Hamon Rye was 89. Um, if you read some of the poems in Love is a Dog from Hell, which came out in the late 70s, he's covering a lot of the same ground just in poems. So mm -hmm. there, there's, there's this back and forth as he moves the material in between genres. And in my opinion, I think he does it very effortlessly where the poems are as effective as the fictionalization is, but it's still, it's still mining that same well uh, with a lot of his best writing. Yeah, it's a deep well. I mean, that's some, that's some, that's some near infinite pain to to explore for sure. Huh. Yeah. Well. well We'll circle back around to it, uh, I'm sure. So this is a little bit more from him uh, talking about the beating. And uh, I think this is interesting. Uh, well, here, this is the one. This is the business about the, uh, the getting back to the, the lawn. So he, he takes a beating and then his father, the thing his father says is, next time I don't want to find any hairs. So if if he's to be believed, he's getting these beatings over the lawn not being mowed right, properly. Right, right. So, all right. As you can imagine, he this tumultuous and troubled childhood significantly influenced his work. We're seeing that already. Uh, it they make a point here that he often did exaggerate and embellish uh, aspects of his life. So we have to take him at his word. It's not like his father put pen to paper and said, yes, I beat my son every day or three times a week for five or six years. But where there's smoke, there's fire, I think. And I, I, we don't have any reason to doubt Bukowski's truth, I guess. I, I don't see why you would play this up too much. What's to be gained from that? Right. Uh, this isn't the, this isn't the stuff that made him famous. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ham on Rye came, if it came in 89, was that right, Jason? Yeah. 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 He was already very famous at that point mm -hmm. and successful and living off his writing. So, um, 
going on in the bio, his parents struggled with poverty. And so there was a lot of tension in the family. They had meager living conditions. And of course, as a child, Bukowski despaired, as you can about imagine. He was also frequently bullied and ridiculed by his classmates due to his German heritage. I don't know what that's mm. about. And his family's <laughs> poverty. Mm. Uh, these experiences of social isolation and mistreatment further contributed to his growing darkness and cynicism. Uh, another aspect of his troubled childhood was a strained relationship with his mother, who often served as a source of emotional turmoil. Uh, turmoil. She would berate him, dismiss his artistic inspirations, and reinforce his feelings of worthlessness. So not only is dad physically abusive, mom is kind of backing dad up, and you're mm -hmm. just completely left on an island. <clears throat> now, Yeah, that's helpless. There's no siblings, right? Right. Yeah, so you're just, he's, this is little boy is just alone in this that's, right that's, that's you can't oh, and no friends either or very few if he's being bullied constantly he's the outcast so that's uh yeah i'm feeling bad for young bukowski here for sure yeah yeah it's not mm -hmm. uh not easy by any stretch and it's uh, also oh i'm sorry i'm sorry kevin it's also no go on heart, it's also the heart of the depression as well and there's a uh a moment that he recounts again in Hamon Rye of every child in the classroom making up an occupation for their father. Oh. And he says that, you know, someone said that he, that one father worked on a movie lot. Another one was a lawyer and he made up an occupation for his father. And then the last kid in the classroom speaks up and says, my dad's unemployed. And the, the Bukowski character is like, why wasn't I able to do that? Why wasn't I able to just say that this is what is going on in my life? I wish I could have been that honest. So, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of it's growing up poor in a time that is associated with bleakness and poverty, which I think is really, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in and at the very edge of the world too. In mm -hmm. this is not like a pastoral Midwestern childhood. This is uh, in L.A. And uh, I feel like he may have had a sibling. He might have had a brother, but it's not. It's not mentioned in. It's not brought up a lot. If it is, if he did. Um, in any case, we'll we'll press on here. Uh, I've got something about a shining light of hope in his mm -hmm. life which would be, of course, writing. Hmm. So we're in fifth grade here in L.A. Hank's fifth grade teacher explained to her class that President Herbert Hoover was slated to appear at the Coliseum in Exposition Park, a few miles south of downtown L.A. and next to the USC campus. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, she told them. You and your parents should attend this event as a civic duty. She asked them each to write essays about the momentous occasion. Hank didn't go, but he wrote about Hoover anyway. He put many details into his essay, like how the president stood ramrod straight, how he waved to the crowds, and how his voice boomed over the sound system. He described the excited populace of L.A. assembled there, cheering their president. When the essays were handed in, the teacher read each dutifully and told the students, there is one bit of writing here about the visit of our president to the Coliseum written by Henry Bukowski. 
It is so beautiful, and I want to read it to you. The kids turned and looked his way. They found it difficult to believe that the class oddball, the outsider, the loner, had been singled out for his writing ability. Once the class settled down, the teacher began reading his story. As the other students left class, Hank's teacher asked him to stay behind. She questioned whether he had actually been present when President Hoover gave his address. Cornered, he admitted that he had not been there. Rather than being angry, the teacher said that this fact made his essay all the more remarkable and that she was very impressed. Hank, as young as he was, realized then that people wanted beautiful lies, not the truth. That's what they needed. People were fools. This impression became central to his way of thinking from that time onward. That was the first time Hank believed he was a writer. Yet rather than being encouraged to write more, he simply drew back, although it impressed him to see that all the kids in his class, even the prettiest girls and the top athletes, stared at him with admiration when the teacher finished reading his essay. Even he almost believed that he had been at the Coliseum. <laughs> okay. All right. There's some power in writing. I tell you what. I tell mm -hmm. you who what. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he was, I'm I'm like 99% sure he was an only child. Uh, okay. I, yeah. Yeah. There's some rumor of like maybe a half brother or something. But in any case, yeah. He, yeah. There's not a, it, and you're right to point that out, Brad. Very lonely, very sad uh, childhood mm -hmm. for, uh, for Hank. Yeah. Woo! Well, and his, his parents also isolated him as well where mm -hmm. he was kept away from the other kids in the neighborhood in fact he recounts that he did not know any other child until kindergarten because his mother and father would keep him inside the house so mm -hmm. you know there's a degree of extreme social is isolation there and an accent and mm -hmm. his mother doesn't have very great English. And Germans aren't the most popular ethnic group in the United States. I hate to yeah. tell you. Yeah. Uh, never have been. And so forth. Hmm. Well, he so he's growing up a little bit. And he makes a friend named Frank. A little friend. He always kind of would. He's a social guy. We'll see. I mean, he eventually you know, frequents bars and he's not, he's like anybody else. He's not some crazy introvert who just needs to be at his computer all day. He needs people like anybody else. Um, so he makes a little friend and uh, the friend's name is Frank and Frank's family belonged to the Catholic church. Mm. This is very interesting. So young Hank attended catechism classes at St. Agatha's church on West Adams Boulevard the church was in what was within walking distance from Longwood Avenue, and Hank began going there with his friend. His parents approved of it and encouraged this. <laughs> and his father said, maybe this will straighten him out. I want to give this because this is about the only religiosity we're going to get out of his life, right? Catechism class interested Hank. He enjoyed passing the time discussing religion with Frank. Little did he know that a man destined to be perhaps the greatest influence on his own on his own work, John Fonte, had undergone. Are you familiar with John Fonte, Brad? No, I don't. I'm, no, I don't know who John Fonte is. Okay, well, he he was very influential. Uh, Jason, can you do you know much about John Fonte? I, I don't know much okay. about John. Well, Fonte. we yeah, uh, Brad, look it up while you're yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, while I'm reading, so John Fonte had undergone a Catholic upbringing in Boulder, Colorado and would write a book about it called Dago Red. 
This book was destined to be one of Hank's favorite pieces in his junior college days. When he read the descriptions of the nuns, the priests, the confession box, and the religious classes, he thought of those days with Frank Sullivan attending the parish church. When a priest told Hank and his friend that animals could not go to heaven because they didn't have souls and therefore could not be baptized, the two boys didn't take this disturbing news well. Instead, they found a dog near the church, brought him inside, and sprinkled him with holy water. Hmm. Gradually, the novelty of Catholicism and its mysteries wore off, and Hank became bored. He decided that the regimentation and dogma didn't suit him, nor did he like a god who seemed so much like his father. After two weeks of skipping classes, the church sent two girls of Hank's age, blonde, blue-eyed, and dressed in flowery blouses, to see him. He told the girls that he didn't want to return to the catechism class, and that was the end of his flirtation with organized religion. It's impossible to imagine Bukowski going to mass every Sunday or even like as an Easter mass Catholic. Mm. It's really yeah. hard to picture. But yeah. yeah, just a little bit of a moment. Yeah. So uh, I got a little on John Fonte just for the audience mm -hmm. and you guys. <clears throat> John Ponte, born in 1909, Denver, Colorado, in his mid-20s, he hitchhikes to California, ends up writing what is often considered the Great Los Angeles Novel, which is 1939's Ask the Dusk. It's part of a quartet of novels um, about Los Angeles. And Ask the Dusk was turned into a film with Colin Farrell and Selma Hayek in 2006, um, some affiliation with, uh, H.L. Mencken of all people. Yeah. Um, just, just, uh, I'm surprised I've never heard of this guy. Um, yeah, me too. I, yeah. I had definitely heard the name before, but I think in the context of Bukowski as yeah, him being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this, he, he's been considered a precursor to the beat writers. So interesting. Robert Town. Future Art of Darkness subject yeah, yeah potentially, throw them sure. on the spreadsheet brad yeah, for sure yeah so just to put you in place in time here he began his junior high school in the same year that franklin roosevelt became president mm -hmm. he listened to his father gripe about the lack of discipline at every level of society and how this was ruining the country his father continued preaching the gospel of hard work and the more he talked the less hank listened but he did hear his father and a lot of other people discuss the great flood of 34, the result of the heaviest downpour in the recorded history of the region. The local newspapers reported that 36 people died in the 8.27-inch deluge. Jeez. The storm, amidst the suffering brought on by hard times, dramatically showed the people of L.A. just how bad life can be, no doubt. Hmm. So here he is, and he's becoming a teenager. They were his teenagers were marked by rebellion and a growing disdain of authority. He would start to fight with his father, further abuse, fighting, and he had difficulties in school. He refused to conform. He was that kid. Yeah. Uh, he spoke English with a strong German accent, taunted by his playmates. They called him Heine, uh, the German diminutive of Heinrich. And when he was much younger. He's a shy kid, socially withdrawn, and then he came down in his teen years with probably on the on the bell curve, 
one of the worst cases of acne uh, that you've that you've ever heard of. Oh no, that's why he's his face is so yeah. scarred up, huh? Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. So, and we're gonna read about it. Mm. Let me get it. Um. So he's got a skin condition, mm. and you know he graduates from junior high. They're arguing over which high school he would in- attend. This is a good little segue. Then we'll get to the um, the acne. Uh, he he wanted to go to L.A. High and Olympic Boulevard, considered to be the best school around, and the one where the wealthy families from the affluent neighborhood of Hancock Park sent their children. So this is his father wants him to go to the fancy school or to like the with the rich kids. He figured that the luster of the rich kids might rub off on his son. This comes out in in Ham on Rye as well. I mean, in in fact, it was a pretty good cross-section of the city, the population of the school, but there were a lot of rich kids. And his father said to him, you'll do well to follow the example of the rich kids. They're from the best families and they know how to buckle down and work. Yeah, because that's how it works. The the people who need to work the the least work the hardest. That's right. Yeah. 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 A little upside down. Uh, Hank answered that it made better sense to attend Polytechnic High because it was closer to home. He lost the argument and reluctantly registered at LA High School. Worse, his face began to break out with acne. But since a skin condition of this kind was normal for kids his age, no one paid much attention to it. On the first day of school, he rode his bicycle along with a friend of his named Baldy. (laughs) Many of the other students had their own cars and most were well-dressed. For an adolescent like Hank, who identified with the poor and who loved to sit back and listen to President Roosevelt's fireside chats, his peers seemed as if they came from a different world. Hank focused much attention on the sons and daughters of the rich, so out of place it seemed to him, in a country ravaged by poverty. That's the thing about these recessions and these depressions that happen. never touches everybody equally. It doesn't. And one of the subtexts of wealth is like, you want to have it to shield yourself from, oh, I don't know, 10% inflation, <laughs> right, stuff like that. Right, right. Like that's what it's about. It's and, and uh, the high contrast of watching families just kind of coast through it compared to people who were like up against it really you think must've influenced him for the rest of his life. All right, let's get into the acne. Through the summer before his sophomore year, his skin condition worsened, and as a result, he felt increasingly alienated from other adolescents. Scorn for the student body grew ever more wildly within him when the affirmative, uh, the affliction took a dramatic turn for the worst. It had erupted on his upper torso and his back, as well as his face. The thought of disrobing in the locker room and then having to stand nude in the showers, subjecting himself to possible ridicule was too much for him. Tremendously embarrassed at this prospect, he opted for ROTC. He was not gung-ho about that, but at least he didn't have to expose himself. The other boys loved their uniforms and wore them proudly. The acne became so bad in that first year of high school that the pustules on his shoulders became raw while he participated in ROTC drills. When drilling with his rifle, he occasionally had to bang his gun against his shoulders quickly and hard. Blood invariably soaked through the uniform at home his mother lined that area of his shirt with cloth hank often stood before the bathroom mirror imagining how he must look to others i felt as if no woman would ever want to be with me i saw myself as some kind of freak remember they were big they dominated my face 
At the end of the first term of high school, he withdrew from school. He didn't like the idea of being singled out, especially for something that was entirely beyond his control. I'm going to go on because this is so essential. Henry Henry. Henry gave him a brown salve, probably sulfur and rose. uh, This is tough. Rosarsenol paste and insisted that he keep the paste in his face long after the time indicated in the instructions. It will make you better, he shouted. I know what I'm doing. On one particular night, he insisted that Hank leave it on all evening. The burning sensation that came along with it became so intense that he ran to the bathtub, filled it with cold water, and washed the salve away. When his father discovered what he had done, he told his wife, that son of a bitch doesn't want to be well. Why did I have to have a son like this? Beyond that, uh, his mother lost her job cleaning houses, and it just goes on. But um, let, let's let's focus a little more on the acne, just to give you a sense of how bad this was. He went to L.A. County Hospital on the other side of town, and he he sat around and waited on the fourth floor uh, where there were charity cases, right? Because the family had no money. Yeah. Uh, when his turn came, the doctor looked at him and called in some other doctors for consultation. That's not a good sign. No. One of them said it was the worst case of acne vulgaris he had ever seen. Hank was amazed at their insensitivity. They talked about him as if he wasn't even present in the most frank and insulting terms. One doctor told of a girl who had just cried, saying that she would never get a man because she would be scarred for life. If she could only see this young man, he said, she would see that she had nothing to complain about. Smarting under this kind of abuse, Hank steeled himself against the physical pain subjected upon him. The doctors went to work with ultraviolet treatments. One of the indicated treatments back in the 30s was with a narrow-bladed surgical knife used to promote drainage. In Hank's case, an electric needle was used to drill each pustule individually. One nurse asked him what he did to occupy himself while out of school. He described going home and staying in bed because he was so ashamed of the acne. That's awful, she said. When he suggested that girls were now out of his life, she told him not to think that way. The nurse was the kindest person he had met in years. She restored his faith. The treatments dragged on for several months, unfortunately not resulting in an improvement. And of course, he's occupied with his looks and the you know the other yeah. boys. I mean, it was just like, can you? I mean, I don't know if you ever had acne, but I mean, you have to imagine like the worst, I guess, zit that you've ever had. But like covering your entire face, probably four times as big, covering your entire upper torso, your shoulders, all of it. Unreal. No, it's incredibly traumatizing. I mean, yeah, yeah, Ugh. yeah. Poor, I got a little kid, more because I want poor kid. I, it, yeah, brutal. I mean, yeah. in addition to everything else, and I want to I want to drill this in because this is so essential to his entire psychology and <laughs> the way he would like write and react the rest of his life, and also why why he has when you look at a picture of him, this is why yeah. it wasn't you know he wasn't you know uh, it wasn't a knife fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see here. Got a few more paragraphs. Let's see. While the acne was still at its worst, and he was in the first months of treatment, he refused to see any of his friends. His classmates, Jimmy Haddix and Baldy, came to visit one morning while his parents were away from the house. It was so bad he left school. <laughs> Crazy. Right, right. He yeah. could hear them outside calling for him, then talking to one another. 
Hank hid in a closet in the hall, leaving the door slightly ajar. Just as he thought, they had entered the house through the back door, which he had left open. As they searched through the house, Hank swung the closet door open and told them to leave. When they hesitated, he said if they didn't leave, he would kill them. Hmm. (laughs) A breakthrough took place in his treatment at the county hospital. After what seemed like countless sessions of ultraviolet treatment and drilling into the pustules, the doctors applied a salve to his face and then covered it in bandages. His entire head lay beneath the bandages. He liked what he saw when he glanced into the mirror on a cigarette machine in the hospital waiting room. Ah, cigarette machine. We used to be a proper country. We used to be a real country. Your cool milds, uh, just like the doctor smokes for your tea zone. Um. So he needed more drilling and it went on and now he's no longer eligible for for free medical care Mm -hmm. because his dad got a job as a guard for the county museum. Mm -hmm. When Henry found out that Hank's free treatment had been ended, he was furious. Those goddamn doctors are bloodsuckers, he said. They'll take all your money and drive home to their mansions. Mm -hmm. He sent Hank to a doctor who believed in a nutritional approach for curing acne, a viewpoint that gained in acceptance throughout the 30s. As a result, Hank uh, began a regimen of carrot juice and other items and avoided fried foods. Mm -hmm. And it goes on, but it starts to uh, eventually it does start to get better. This is where he writes his first short story. Ah. Let me make sure we're on track here. Uh, But before I do, because I want to hear from you a little bit. brad where are you at with him right now where are you well, at with uh... i just i just feel bad for him i mean he's got these things that have just this is all the stuff the abuse the acne this is all just purely circumstantial none of this is like laying in the bed you made kind of stuff right this is just this just sucks um it, it... <laughs> yeah and yeah yeah, and man, the, the the thing about the the father's discipline is always so interesting to me. There's there's always you know a parenting technique. You can't have no discipline, but you see this a lot where it crosses some line, and the kid's ultimate reaction is to just say screw it to all of the rules. Mm-hmm. Right? It turns into just like, well, I don't care about. There is no authority. None of you know. It it, it gets into this arbitrary, unfair, cruel territory, and person internalizes that, and that to them, it turns into. You know, I'm all for rebellion when it makes sense, but when you rebel against everything, sometimes there's nothing left. Um, there's going to be you're going to have some problems in life, right. without a doubt. It's not yeah. raising a child; it's enduring a child until you can get rid of them. Right. Is, right. That's not parenting. Right. Exactly. Uh, and then there's that weird line in abuse, in including mental abuse, where it there's a quality of like unresolved sadomasochistic impulses in the parent that kind of mm-hmm. get visited on the child. Right. And I think we're definitely in that territory. Yeah. Yeah. It's not often rendered very effectively in like film, uh, mm-hmm. but, but you can get the sense of it from his uh, writing for sure. Yeah. It's often, often shown in like a cartoonish way. Uh, and it's right. not a cartoon because yeah. you're, yeah, not only are you're, you're like psychically enmeshed with the, the parent, the parent's supposed to be your conduit to the world at 11. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not only is that conduit all right. screwed because they're all screwed up, but then you're getting this weird feedback loop. Yeah. It doesn't even need to get physical for it to be totally twisted. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. And, but this was, this was heavily physical. Well, and the uh, physical is almost always matched with a lot of mental too, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, sure. And psychological abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's get to this first story. I have, I have a few quotes from him about his childhood. Uh, and these would come out later in the seventies and the eighties when he was famous and people were interviewing him. I had the typical horrendous childhood and I know what it feels like to be neglected and abused and not liked and to grow up with all kinds of hangups and hatreds and anxieties. It's nothing unusual. Another quote, I had a terrible childhood. I, it was pretty bad all the way around. I couldn't stand authority and I still can't. I couldn't stand authority in any way, shape or form. And it was always there. Another one, I came from a family where my father was a real authoritarian and I never really recovered from that. So I decided to be the opposite. And that's speaking to what you just mentioned, Brad. Mm -hmm. uh, and the he says here, <laughs> I grew up with the two most frightening women I have ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of women. The cruelty and strangeness that went on in that house were unbelievable. And in the, um, in Born Into This, he goes back to the house oh god and walks you through it and uh he's very impassioned about it he's not he's not happy but what's what's a young man going to do how is he going to how is he going to escape well mm. let's go in the fall of 1935 when his acne was at its worst hank wrote his first short story basing his main character on baron manfred von richthofen you know who that was brad no idea the Red Baron. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, the, yeah. the World War One flying ace. Yeah, like the most the most kills of any ace. And I World I used War. to enjoy his pizza. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fifteen minutes in the oven, four hundred degrees. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> yeah, going on. His hand was shot off and he kept fighting guys out of the sky. This is all psychologically impossible, I understand. But remember, my face was breaking out in boils while everybody else was making love to their fellow students and all that. That tortured him, uh, that he wasn't able to have a car, pick up a girl, go to prom, get laid. He was acutely aware of that, as anybody would be at that age in L.A. in the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So... He said, I was the ugly boy of the neighborhood, so I wrote this long story. It was a little yellow notebook. Cost me six cents. I wrote with a pencil how this guy with the iron hand shot down this guy and that guy. To have created this half-real, half-imaginary man excited him. From that moment on, he knew that he had an escape valve, a way to fight the fear that he sensed all around him and the lack of understanding. Another thing he had learned was the value of being alone. Having endured solitude enough in his childhood, he found new value in it as an adolescent, being forced to go into himself, to find things to do, and to think over within the confines of his house during the months of convalescence. He learned to face himself more keenly than before, to seek his own counsel more easily. And he missed one semester of school, but then uh, made his way back to, to school. Uh, and I've got a little bit about alcohol we're and we're coming up we'll get to some poetry here at some point uh there's there's a lot of good stuff i'm very excited uh to hear jason read his poems are are wonderful like and they're voluminous so if there's a poem you don't like just read the next one because you'll get more 
All right. Uh, before I go on, Jason, where are you at with Bukowski right now in terms of the bio? So this is all really interesting in terms of like that, that formativeness that you were talking about in the anti-authoritarianism. Uh, I was rereading Post Office this morning to get us ready. His and, first novel. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that, and I think this is where he gets picked up by 70s counterculture, is that the main antagonists are all sadistic bosses in that novel. Um, they're all people who he identifies as being directly confrontational with him. And then he internalizes that and mouths back off to them and has this back and forth. And it's not just one, it's multiple. It moves from one um, antagonist to another antagonist as he remains within the postal service. And that that's so interesting to what you were saying, Kevin, about, about his dad. And, you know, I know we don't like to psychoanalyze here on the show, um, but it's it's weird not to see that as something that carries on from his childhood into, you know, how he processes his adulthood, even if those are heavy fictionalized events in the novel. Right, right. And this is a fellow who doesn't have the character character of a boss or a manager. He's always going to be until he finds himself in his writing, a factotum, he's just going to do odd jobs. Mm-hmm. And he's like a man, a very, very sensitive man, trapped inside like an Escher painting. Mm-hmm. And on every level, there's a new boss or manager. <laughs> and he has, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you're muted, Jason. We lost your audio there for a second. We lost your audio. Okay. No worries. That's the thing that really was impressed on me going back in reading stuff for today is how sensitive Bukowski is. It goes against sort of the stereotype of this womanizing, misogynistic, you know, hard scrabbled guy Mm -hmm. in the writing, particularly in the poetry. There is just bare naked nerve ending sensitivity and it's it it's 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 it goes back to these formative experiences too of when he was a kid yeah without a doubt yeah it's interesting kevin you talked at the beginning like maybe there is such a thing as toxic toxic masculinity i mean i think one of the manifestations of this kind of thing is like you take a sensitive person like bukowski insightful with perspective and you throw them into a world that just crushes that right just grinds that down and of course it's going to be booze and set he's trying to coat himself with things to to survive right emotionally Mm -hmm. and psychologically sure i mean maybe that's a speculation but yeah why don't we say toxic masculinity masculinity it's Uh, toxic humanity humanity has toxicity and he grew up in a toxic environment i mean sure yeah like from that experience if you would have if the story would have ended and then at 16 he committed suicide like would it have been that big of a surprise it would have been tragic but it wouldn't have been a surprise he never would that that's happening right now to some poor person exactly right Right. and we'll never hear about it right it'll be a statistic or a Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So uh, I got to cover his drinking a little bit because, of course, he's he's one of the all time famous writer drinkers of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You've got Hemingway, Mm -hmm. Hunter, Bukowski, Mm -hmm. probably. Faulkner was was known for drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, he's one of these cliches. It's a cliche. Mm -hmm. You think about booze when you think about uh, Bukowski. In 1937, during the last semester of the school year, Hank began drinking because he looked older than his age, and he began drinking. This wasn't like, you'll hear, okay? Because he looked older, he occasionally went into bars in downtown LA. This must have been when the drinking age was 18, Mm -hmm. and he found whiskey to his liking. He met three guys who were three or four years older than himself. One was a tall, well-built fellow with light blonde hair that fell over his forehead and was perpetually uncombed. He made his living by robbing service stations. Based. (laughs) (laughs) Random. Don't rob things. Yeah. Another was a a pleasant young man called Stinky. (laughs) I should have saved the base for that one. (laughs) Double base. Um, Hank always stuck. If your nickname's Stinky, get a clue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I got I got to tell you a story. So my my great uncle who helped raise uh raise me after my uh, father passed away. Happy Father's Day by the way. Um he was in Korea and he had a a black he had a skunk tattoo on like his right bicep hmm. and right underneath it was a black skunk. The red nose had faded, but right hmm. underneath it it said stinky. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> was that like <laughs> for like an army tattoo, right? So yeah. hey, you know, yeah. maybe I don't know. Maybe this is I don't think this was this was my my great uncle, but pretty funny. Anyway, <laughs> runs in the family. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Hank always stuck up for him and protested against the nickname. They hung out. Yeah, so there you go. He's rooting for the underdog. He's always looking out. Okay. They hung out with a married man who held down a steady job and rented a large apartment. As the oldest of the group and the one with a steady job, he supplied whiskey and kept his house open to his friends. Hank was able to articulate many of the thoughts that these three other young men had, and they admired him for it. Drinking buddies. Mm -hmm. All of society came under his scrutiny as he attacked it with relentless energy, never raising his voice to be like a soapbox or with an absolutely cool demeanor. He said things like, I don't care about anything or anybody. Nothing Mm -hmm. matters. On numerous occasions, the four of them held drinking contests. Hank usually won. The money he earned, so they're like real contests. Like a professional drinker. Tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> the money he earned supplied him with liquor of his own. Stinky became so smashed after one of the drinking bouts that he half crawled into the bathroom. When Hank went to check on him, he found his friend sacked out in the bathtub. In order to meet his drinking buddies, Hank always waited until his parents turned out the lights and went to bed, which was at 8 o'clock every night, like clockwork. Once he knew they were asleep, he opened the back window, climbed out, negotiated his way over a hedge, and then caught the streetcar. Getting back home was a little more difficult. He never left sober from these get-togethers with his friends. Tottering down the street to the streetcar stop, he would somehow keep on his feet, climb on board when the car came, and collapse onto a seat. Neither of his parents seemed to know how he spent his evenings because he usually climbed back into the house through the same window. There was little chance of his activities being discovered. The closer Hank came to the date of his graduation, the more boldly he acted. He stopped trying to mask his morning hangovers. Look at him. How will he ever get a job? 
Hank's father said one morning. And what will the neighbors think? What will become of you? I want no more of this drinking. Do you understand me? If you don't stop drinking now, you'll keep doing it all of your life. And then we'll, we'll see what will become of you. Yeah. A few days yeah. later, he came up or to the Or become like you, Dad? You want me to become like you, Dad? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. For real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Learn it from you, Dad. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. A few days later, he came up to the house, uh, the door of his parents' house and knocked rather than going in through the back window, as he usually did. His mother opened a little window in the door and yelled, Henry, oh, Henry, he's drunk again. <laughs> Hank heard his yeah. father's booming, awful voice. He's drunk again. Uh this is important. Uh, Henry's footsteps resounded through the house as he ran from the bedroom up to the front door. He looked out of the small window and told Hank that he would not open the door. You are a disgrace to your mother and your country. <laughs> Hank complained that he, okay. it was cold and warned his father he would break the door down unless he opened it immediately. No, no, my son, you did not deserve my house. True to his word, Hank stepped back several paces and then ran at breakneck speed toward the door. His shoulders lowered, his weight leaning forward. He failed to completely break the door down, although a sharp cracking sound assured him that he had damaged the lock. His father gave in at that point. Hank walked inside. His mother looked at him coldly. His father's face etched in hatred made him sick. He wanted to tell him so. Instead, his stomach contracted and he vomited on the rug. You know what we do when a dog shits on the rug, his father asked. No, Hank answered. Henry rushed forward and grabbed Hank's neck from behind. Uh, oh, skip the page here. You are a dog, he screamed and tried pushing Hank down in the pool of vomit. Hank struggled to get free. Not an easy matter given Henry's height. He said in a firm, commanding voice, stop. I'm asking you one last time, stop. This provoked more pressure from his father who managed to press Hank down so that his nose almost touched the soiled rug. Then, as if through some miraculous power, Hank swung his arm up and punched his father with a solid uppercut to the chin. The big man fell backward into the sofa. His mother, who had already been screaming hysterically, dug her fingernails into her son's face, screaming, You hit your father! You hit your father! Mein Gott! How could you do such a thing? <laughs> Hank stood there feeling almost serene. I was out of the picture, really, he recalls. I mean, the old man had fallen, and in my mind, it was all over. So I just stood there while he continued to dig into me. Blood spattered onto the floor, mixing with the vomit and creating little pools of blood here and there. After several minutes passed, Hank, who was himself a mess of blood, asked his mother if she had finished. Yes, she replied. The drinking, however, had just begun. Oh, geez. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Jason, do you have a bit from Ham on Rye about him at the prom? No, uh, I don't have the section on no, the prom. Just... No worries. I'll, I'll blast through some of this stuff. Uh, I want to get to the point where his father... Uh, kicks him out essentially which i think we could probably oh. see coming yeah You're, i thought that was gonna be gonna be the end of that story I, he never right. went back again yeah no spoilers yeah. uh on art of darkness all right so here are a few uh bukowski quotes on drinking well before i read these he has a, there's a great bit in that documentary where he talks about liquor being a symphony you use it to lift yourself up he loved drinking he was he certainly an alcoholic but 
he didn't seem to be too bothered by it. Like he made it work. Not yeah. not all alcoholics can make it work for as long as uh, as yeah. Hank did, and he had a he had a serious conscious relationship with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh yeah, here, oh yeah. Here's what he said. Uh, that's the problem with drinking. I thought as I poured myself a drink. This is from Women, uh, which is a novel he wrote in the late seventies after women started throwing themselves at him because he's, he was famous. So I'll read it again. That's the problem with drinking, I thought, as I poured myself a drink. If something bad happens, you drink in, a, in, a, in an attempt to forget. If something good happens, you drink in order to celebrate. And if nothing happens, you drink to make something happen. Hmm. Preach. Yeah. Uh, another quote. Drinking is an emotional thing. It joggles you out of the standardism of everyday life, out of everything being the same. Another one. I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. I don't drink when I'm in New York. I drink four or five times a year. I go through long periods where I don't drink at all. But when I'm drunk, I'm drunk. That's from a 1988 interview. You you get the impression that like maybe he cooled down later in life based on that. But because when he was young, he was definitely like day drinking. Yeah. Um, and this is a great quote from mm-hmm. Factotum. This is uh, put it on a shirt. Drinking is only a problem when you stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah. good. Uh, so I, I do have a bit from this uh, this biography about Rom, uh, just to give you where what happened there there's a there's a beautiful section in um uh in ham on rye but i think this is worth reading as in all high schools the upcoming senior prom was a primary topic among graduating seniors except for hank who had convinced himself that no girl would want to be seen with him the prom was one rite of passage he would have to pass up but he did plan on attending the graduation ceremonies the thought of having to put on a robe however had and to put up with the principal's dreary speech and then stand in line uh, to await the awarding of his diploma filled him with loathing. The graduating seniors made big plans for prom night. Many of the boys would be picking up their dates for the festivities in cars. All all Hank had was a bicycle. He listened to the excited talk with an increasing sense of alienation. His feeling of being on the outside was growing ever more acute, especially since he now bore permanent scars on his face. The lack of self-esteem that had emerged when the acne first appeared still governed many of his actions. An inner revolt had taken hold of him, ideas that would later surface in his writing about how the entire structure of society was populated by smooth-talking phonies. His father did not view Hank's graduation with pride. Rather than delivering a speech to him in which he saw a future filled with opportunity, he portrayed a bleak landscape of poverty and unfulfilled ambition. He kept mentioning normal kids, asking his son why he couldn't be more like them. Whenever he could, he drew verbal tableaus of failure, summoning up images of furnished rooms on Skid Row. You want to end a bum? That's what'll happen if you don't get some direction in life. Boy and girl paired off for prom night at the high school. A ritual played out, of course, all across the country. Talk of the prom grew more intense as the day approached. Girls huddled together in the hallways were on the school grounds discussing their plans, ogling certain young men. The guys huddled together to brag about their intended sexual conquests. The night of the prom, Hank left Longwood Avenue and walked over to the girls' gym where the prom was being held. 
Arriving at the entrance, he heard live music and animated conversation, laughter, applause, joyful shouts, all intermingled. He stood so near to the wondrous scene within, and yet he stood across an unbridgeable gulf. No matter how he intellectually defined himself as being different, the nonconformist, he yearned to be there with the other young people. He stayed hidden away and looked inside through a wire mesh window. Every one of the girls had been transformed into an adult. They were so mature looking in their long, flowing, formal gowns. Their gestures seemed grown up. The boys in tuxedos were equally impressive. Couples danced with ease and grace or stood in small groups conversing. What further astonished the lonely onlooker was the sight of some of the other class outsiders. There they were, secure, well-dressed, joining in with the more well-known campus personalities. Hank peered in at the scene with his nose pressed to the wire screen. The obligatory punch bowl sat at the center of a decorated table. Young men gallantly led their dates onto the dance floor. Nearby, a good-looking girl with a glass of punch in hand, watching the orchestra and whispering something into the ear of her date. He remained in the darkness, observing, celebrating, and cursing his solitude. He began to feel like an animal, some kind of beast, as he compared himself to his self-assured classmates. In later years, when he often signed his letter, Beast Buck, perhaps he thought back on the night of the prom he didn't attend. He -hmm. thought of the girl's wondering how it would feel to touch one, holding her in his arms, embracing her, kissing her. Yet the mere thought of talking to some of the more stately, beautiful girls filled him with terror. Surely they would laugh or run away in horror if he made advances of any kind. And then he said, watching them dance, later he would say, uh, I really did begin to hate them, all Mm. of them. As they danced so flawlessly, they had easy, untroubled lives, they had rich parents. Most of them did. Yeah. Hmm. So pretty heavy. In Ham yeah. on Rye, he uh, he describes himself like with his head wrapped in gauze. I think in the novel. Mm. So maybe maybe it wasn't, but he was scarred already at that point from from the acne. Yeah, that's not taking too much poetic license, right? I mean, he mm. he was in bandages and scarred up at some point. So yeah. So yeah, we're going to get him we're going to get him out of his house and into college and on the road and then be, begin getting him into some of the poetry but I think he this went is to cool. college he briefly attended LA City, City okay. College okay. but before we go no. there <laughs> sort of yeah. um yeah <laughs> uh just to let me see here this is what so he's going through all of this We've just spent an hour, 80 minutes-ish, 75 minutes describing his tortured childhood and his torturous time in high school. And uh, this is what some of his classmates said. Jane Mary Ball, Eklund, who graduated along with Hank and went on to write two novels and two textbooks, says she doesn't remember him at all. She (laughs) continues... We graduated in an aura of innocence. A lot of our class went into the military, of course, because what's coming, Brad? World War II. There you go. Yeah. She goes on, the innocence was soon shattered by the war. She and several other students, including Ray Bradbury and Elma Bakker, author of An Island Called California, were part of an informal writer's group. Hank didn't even know the group existed, but he says that if he had, he would have avoided it. 
he had a couple of friends, but I just think it's funny. One of his classmates like, no, I had no idea he existed, which is of course <laughs> exactly what it would be like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you think yeah. everybody's paying attention to you. And the fact of the matter is the worst case is nobody's paying any attention to you. Right. And and one of the things that I think is so interesting as he describes it to in Ham on Rye is he's not an, an in terms of his place in society. He's not, he's not categorized. He's athletic or he tries to be athletic. Mm -hmm. He um, isn't a nerd as people would expect, right? He doesn't fit into that type of category. He's just a guy. Right. <laughs> you know, he's I, like, I know he's a, yeah, he's a big galoot. Yeah. And he does, his family doesn't have any money. He's in LA mm -hmm. and he rides a bike to school. Right. Right. And his, you know, you're just at the bottom of the pecking order. There's yeah. really, right. and there's, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and outside of some incredible prowess on the football field or some other standout academic, he's just one of these kind of burnout kids yeah. that you, you probably remember gentlemen, yeah. because nothing yeah. changes. Yeah. Right. And, and he didn't endure, endure too much to be like a charismatic kind of fun loving guy at this point, too. Right. I mean, yeah. right. he's not cracking wise in class. And how do you relate to other kids, much less young girls becoming women, but girls yeah. when you've suffered beatings like you're just right. not. Your, your your brain is quite, I think, literally going to be developing in a different way, and you're going to just be overflowing with rage and bitterness. And it's a really – and I'm not making – this isn't apologetics for his later misbehavior because he was a he was a tough dude. I mean, and he, you know, yeah. he did himself no favors going forward. However, you look at this and you go, okay, well – I mean, th frankly, this has got – you got school shooter vibes over this. Yeah. This is like, yeah. you know – it, it it could have been a heck of a lot worse. Yeah, you could yeah. see him. Uh, somebody crosses him in just the right way, and he just murders the guy. Again, like well, the, oh, like yeah. the suicide or he's, thing, that or he's drunk, or he's drunk. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and that's so interesting, Brad, that you should say that because one of the refrains that comes up all the time in the fiction is he says, "I'm going to kill you." Oh, really? Okay. Is. Yeah, yeah he has this refrain <laughs> through throughout a lot of the novels of when he comes to heads with someone that that's his his go to response is I'm going I'm to kill, kill you. you. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of where we uh, there's a lot of appeal in all kinds of different transgression drugs and this and that. And then when somebody crosses into murderous territory, I think everybody kind of takes one step back and is like, right. OK. Right. Yeah. Uh -oh. Well, yeah. He would love. He would love to say, "I'll kill you, motherfucker." Yeah, uh, motherfucker. I'll kill you. Yeah. He just said he was a. Yeah. He could swear. Yeah. As, oh, I'm sure. As, yeah. yeah as well as <laughs> and yet, and yet, he's bookish, which mm. I think throws out all those preconceived ideas. Reading all of this, like fairly heavy literature he's reading 
D.H. Lawrence. He's reading Huxley. He's oh, you're kind of cutting in and out there, uh, Jason Hemingway. It, yep. Yep. No, no worries. Uh, yeah, but he's he's reading heavily. We'll keep an eye on it. If it gets to be more of a problem, we'll we'll try to reconnect you. But yeah, and he's and he loves. At one point, he loved the library. I mean, we sort of sure. blasted past that. But I mean, I don't know, Brad. Do you ever remember as a child, like discovering the library and just going, "How can this place be real?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like going to the library for sure, and definitely like disappear into books. It's a very good escapist territory to get into. Yeah. Yeah, so for I can, sure, I can see that happening. Well, so moving forward in the bio a little bit, uh, he graduates from LA High. He would attend LA City College for a couple of years, taking courses in art, journalism, and literature. He had a job at Sears Roebuck for oh. like a week or two that didn't last. And it was sort of one of his first experiences of going, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just knew he was he was in trouble. Um, and he would write in Ham on Rye about his, some of his colleagues. Uh, so let's, let's read this. This isn't from Ham on Rye. I'll get to it. Hank became aware that Sears demanded employees who were content to spend their entire lives on the job. This would be one of my first lessons. They expected people to give their entire lives and all their loyalty to some shit job. I would see it again and again in L.A., New Orleans, Philadelphia, wherever I traveled. How he found this truth was simple. He met his fellow employees, and he describes them in Ham on Rye. Four men and three women. They were all old. They seemed to have salivary problems. Little clumps of spittle had formed at the corners of their mouths. The spittle had dried and turned white and then been coated by new wet spittle. Some of them were too thin, others too fat. Some were nearsighted, others trembled. One old fellow in a brightly colored shirt had a hump on his back. They all smiled and coughed, puffing at cigarettes. Hmm. And he, yeah, and Hmm. his job consisted of making deliveries from the stockroom to the various sales sections of the store. Here I was, the tough guy, Hank Bukowski. I kept wondering what the guys from school would say if they saw me working with this crew of misfits. <laughs> so he did he didn't last long and he did not like that job. And so he he enrolled in the college partly to appease his father. Uh, you know, because if if he's going to college, at least he's doing something. Right. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So his father kicks him out hmm. one afternoon. And why do you think his father kicks him out, Brad? I mean, boozing. I, it's not like he stopped boozing. Mm, no, the other vice sex. No, no, he wouldn't lose his virginity until he was 23. Oh, I was going to think. Yeah. It's, it, it's because of his writing. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. One afternoon, Hank was on his way home from City College when his mother suddenly appeared before him. Henry, you can't go home. Your father is furious. He will kill you. Hank was taken completely by surprise. He said, how is he going to hurt me? I can whip his ass. (laughs) Catherine Bukowski explained that the old man had found Hank's short stories. He reads them. Henry, all of them. She described in detail how he had come across them in a drawer and sat down to read them. He told me he was going to kill you. 
I just imagine reading every one. Just I would kill him. <laughs> kill him. I'm gonna kill him. Baron is flying around. He's gonna keep killing yeah. him. Yep. And yeah. And uh, right. So he, his father had thrown out all of the stories along with his clothing and typewriter onto the lawn. God. When Hank heard that, he became furious and could hardly wait for a confrontation. His mother tried to stop him, holding onto the back of his shirt as he kept on going. When they came to the house on Longwood Avenue, a few blocks away, Hank saw his writing scattered everywhere across the same lawn that had caused him so much hell as a child. He stood there amidst the dirty laundry, the loose papers, the bric-a-brac of his life and yelled for his father to come out of the house so that he could beat him up. He waited. When his father did not come forward, he began picking up his manuscripts and then his typewriter. He walked to the W Street car, paid, took a transfer, and headed downtown to Temple Street, where he found inexpensive lodgings in a district filled with uh, Filipino immigrants. The rent came to $1.50 per week for a cramped room on the second floor. Little did he know that his newfound quarters foreshadowed hundreds of more rooms, roughly the same size and equally shabby. Far from feeling down in the mouth, however, he took to his new environment, especially when he found a bar almost directly downstairs, a place mostly frequented by Filipinos, whose slick gangster-like appearance appealed to him. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And this is another side of America that he covers that isn't like not a lot of writers cover. Is this just like down and out, day laborer, living in a rented room, a shared bathroom down the hall. Maybe mm-hmm. you have a sink in your room. Maybe you have a hot plate. Those used to be way more common. Mm-hmm. That was a thing. Now those are being replaced by those like neoliberal Facebook looking apartments that are just boxes and everything's an, a luxury efficient, building. An efficiency. Now, now we yeah. call it an efficiency. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but these are like boarding rooms for laborers mm-hmm. and they had them everywhere back when there was work to do. <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah now that we're in a post work era um all right so yeah and he so we're getting to 1941 here and he uh he stayed at city college because he did, didn't know what else to do and now we're coming up to the war Whew. so all right uh so he was born in 1920, now, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah, Let me make okay. sure it's right. To... Yep, yep, 1920. Okay. So we're into the 40s, so he's mm-hmm. 20-ish. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna press on here uh as we get into the war. So at some juncture here, he makes his way east uh to New York City to begin a career as a financially pinched blue-collar worker with the hopes of becoming a writer. He took a bus to New Orleans first, and there's a bit of a pit stop where he got chatting with some young woman on the bus on the bus from Texas, from Fort Worth, to the point where she was like crying and begging for him to get off the bus with her. But he didn't do it. He went to New Orleans. Then he went back and tried to find her. Mm-hmm. Got in, like, talked with a journalist in Dallas who published an a, a paper saying like a misconnection, but but zhuzhing it up, saying a young writer mm-hmm. from L.A. on a plane wanted to meet Mrs. So-and-so. And then he finally meets her and shows up at the house. And they're like these ultra Christians. Oh, and he gets boy. weirded out. So he just goes back to 
New Orleans. Like th- th- okay. this is the thing about covering Bukowski's life is we're already 90 minutes into this episode is like stuff like that happens to him a lot. Like this yeah. the dude is like, yeah, once you hit the road. Yeah. In the 40s, it's just story after story after story. And it's no surprise that he would like end up being pretty widely considered to be a, a good, if not great writer of stories. Because mm-hmm. there's all kind of all kinds of crazy shit happens to you when you have one suitcase with maybe maybe you have a typewriter in it and you hit the road. He's right. got those stories. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Intitrant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep. So, and he would go back and forth to L.A. He do he did a stint in San Francisco, and then he finally went back out east and. He, on July 22nd, oh, uh, he he drew one of the uh, one of the like longest tail draft cards possible. Hmm. Like there was no way he was going to be drafted. He just got lucky. He oh wow! Drew a like you know the the Germans would have to be like fight fighting the Americans to the last man. Mm. You know he got lucky with the draft card, so he's bopping around the country. But this is a time a time one. He's a German American. Right. Not bringing that up. It's not a popular thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, it's a time where if a young man is like on a bus or in a grocery store, not serving. Yeah. He gets shamed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And his father, his father would shame him. There was one point uh, where he came back to L.A. and his parents had put like a gold star on the house, which was meant to indicate that their father had been or that their son had been killed in combat. (laughs) And his, there's a little anecdote where his mother's like, his father's like, well, now what are we going to tell the neighbors? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Which is so, I mean, just like, wow. well, you'd be better dead in the war, you know? Right. Um, wow. Right. So it's 1944. He's arrested by FBI agents in Philadelphia on, uh, because he uh, is, suspected of draft evasion and i'm going to read this yeah yeah i'm going to read this story okay let's see he stayed in philadelphia twice i can't be real positive on the dates he says you know i was drunk on my ass all the time and getting into fights i hardly even knew the war was going on People would talk about some battle in Europe or the Pacific, and I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. (laughs) Despite his high draft number, Hank was obligated to report to the draft board, but he had fallen into the habit of not responding to the notices he received from them and uh, that asking him that he send his current address. He was itinerant. He's moving around. Rather than doing that, he merely left his forwarding address at the post office, thinking that would be sufficient. He had received a notice from the Selective Service in St. Louis to report there for his draft examination, but wrote back to say he had moved on and wanted to appear at the board in Philadelphia. He never received a response. One night late in 1942, while writing in a Philadelphia ro- uh, rooming house, there was a knock on his door. He thought it either had to be the landlord or one of the people living on his floor. He buttoned his shirt, walked to the door, and opened it. Two well-dressed men stood before him. He had been drinking on and off most of the afternoon and evening, and in his semi-feverish condition, he thought that these men had come to offer him a Pulitzer Prize. Considering <laughs> that he had <laughs> considering that he had not published anything yet, that would have been quite some achievement. 
One of them asked if he was Henry C. Bukowski. <laughs> yeah, he said. Come with us, the man responded, and bring your coat along. He added that, added that he and his partner were FBI agents. Perplexed, Hank went back into his room for his coat, turned off the radio, and went with them downstairs. They led him to a waiting car where two other men sat. He got in the car with them, and they drove off. One of the men commented that Hank was acting pretty cool about being taken from his room by FBI agents. Most people would be asking what they had done wrong and a lot of other questions. The man continued. Hank remained listless. He was entertaining thoughts of suicide during this period of his life, working as little as possible and wondering, uh, feeling already defeated, if he would have made it writing stories had circumstances been different. Nothing these men said or did could affect him much. <laughs> That's so funny. You're just so despairing. The FBI picks you up. You're like, ah. Uh, this now this all right whatever i don't whatever i don't care (laughs) yeah the agents became so aggravated by his coolness that they began hassling him in minor ways sit up a gruff voiced man said another mentioned that they could they hadn't hit him yet and perhaps they should we haven't struck you have we not yet hank answered he was ordered to keep his hands on his knees just before they turned into the facility where he would be held for one night he reached up to scratch his nose okay watch that hand (laughs) <laughs> uh, weapon out of his nose or something all right after what well he did have a quite a schnoz <laughs> yeah. he really did yeah. he does yeah it's true yeah <laughs> after one night in a holding tank he was taken to Mayamensing prison a large detention center built in a neo-egyptian style in 1836 and closed in 1963 described as a huge urban jail by a former guard the facility once held edgar Allan poe as a prisoner in the debtor's wing future subject yeah the other section where hank would be detained looked like a medieval castle with turrets and brick walls it consisted of a pair of three-story cell blocks housing over 1200 inmates It had originally been a facility for hardened criminals, but now housed a population of inmates interred for a variety of petty offenses. You just live it in Philly. It's just a place for, if you're living in Philly and you jaywalk. Uh, As he entered the prison, a huge door swung open. It seemed over 30 feet wide and easily as high. Hank imagined himself entering a castle on the Rhine. Instead of feeling downcast, he felt honored and in awe. He landed in a cell with a swindler we'll call John Jones, who Hank claims held the distinction of being public enemy number one, although the term had as always been loosely applied. Jones was heavy set and balding, not a particularly menacing looking fellow, but as Hank found out, neither did he have a good disposition. When Hank told him he had been arrested for draft dodging, Jones became exceedingly self-righteous, saying that he and the other inmates didn't like draft dodgers or indecent exposure cases, to which Hank snapped back, oh, I see, it's honor among thieves, right? You just keep the country strong so you can rob it. We still don't like draft dodgers, Jones said. And it goes on, and it's about his time uh, when he's in the clink, but I think he he spent like a couple of weeks there, and yeah, and you know, this is a time when the U.S. was at war with Germany, right? Mm-hmm. And Germans, German-Americans were suspected of disloyalty. Mm-hmm. His German, he was born in Germany. Yeah. He was held for 17 days in that prison. And let's and let's face it, not that he was disloyal. He wasn't particularly loyal either. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think that Hank has much of a reason to love his country at this fair, point. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's okay. Sometimes that's all right. Yeah, mm-hmm. he hasn't had the easiest time. No, I he doesn't know anybody point. anything at this point. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so at some point he uh, he has to go to the induction center, and he figured he'd end up having to serve in the army. When it came time for his physical, he found his way to a crowded building in downtown Philly. The men there with him were mostly young and desperate looking. Uh, he was thin, disheveled, weakened by heavy bouts of drinking. Others were frightened and be- bewildered. He went through his physical and passed. Then they sent him to see the psychiatrist, a middle-aged man with a kindly face. The authorities had confiscated several of his manuscripts when they had arrested him and handed them over to the psychiatrist, who probably <laughs> passed Hank off as unstable when he read lines like, my mother's heart is dead. Mm. The doctor briefly shuffled through some papers, then looked up at Hank and asked, do you believe in the war? No, Hank answered. The psychiatrist then put this question to him. Are you willing to go fight the war? He said he would if he was called on. And then the psychiatrist said, I can see that you are a very intelligent man. Now, this is Bukowski's account, of course. Mm-hmm. We're having a party over at my place next Wednesday. There will be doctors, lawyers, scientists, artists, and writers. Will you come to my party? Hank said, no. Rather than being offended, he was told, all right, you don't have to go. Where? To the war. As Hank got up to leave, the doctor said, you don't. You didn't think we would understand did you? So that's sort of how he uh, how he got out of the war, yeah. uh, and then they would they would come back a few years later. Uh, I think the FBI and they arrested him again. Or it was like four days later, and they were looking for his uncle John, who was dead. And you know, and Jeez. when he said when he told them that his uncle John was dead, the agent said, "Jesus, no wonder we can't find him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was he was made he was made four F, which yeah. is un, unfit for military service. Right. That it's just that me, they just look at it and they're like, yeah, turns out you're Charles Bukowski. We, just, uh, <laughs> we don't think we should send you. Be better got some homes <laughs> to write. Right. This reminds me of one of my favorite bits from Annie Hall. Are you familiar with this one? Mm. Uh, where he's on the Dick Cavett show and uh, he says he's got a special classification. Uh, they did not, here's the quote. They did not take me in the army. I was, uh, interestingly enough, I was I was 4P, Dick Cavett, 4P. Yeah. And then he says, yes, in the event of war, I'm a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I love that joke. Yeah. That's a great one. But yeah, Bukowski yeah. was like that. He had a yeah. few things to say too about being uh, a kraut in America. Here's what he said. I'm German. I think there's something German in me. I do respect authority. So that's very interesting. Hmm. This is much later, much later. Mm-hmm. I was brought up in America, but I wasn't an American. I was a German. I couldn't get along with the American kids. I just didn't fit in. So he's got that, he's got that quality of almost being like a first generation. I mean, certainly he was on his mother's side, and his father doesn't sound like his father was very assimilated into America no. either, you know. Right. His army. And one more quote. I always felt like a foreigner in America, but I guess that's good. You can't write too much about being American because everybody else has done that. But you can write a lot about being a foreigner. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. Uh, I've got a bit about the first time he had sex. 
you guys want to hear it? Yeah. Let's let's go. Yeah. All right. We're yeah, we're in this to win this. I think uh Jason, during the prep, you said you're prepared to go the distance. Okay. So, All right. All right. Yeah, this this guy gets it. This is gonna be good. All right. He's 23 when he loses his virginity. Okay. In Philadelphia, at the age of 23, he had sex for the first time. While sitting at a bar near where he lived, an extremely fat woman of indeterminate age walked in. He sat beside her and ordered several rounds of drinks. Because he was drunk, he could speak openly, saying that he could offer her something she would never forget. She seemed amused, and this encouraged him to go on in that vein, which he did, telling her all the delightful things he was going to do once they were alone. The woman laughed and suggested they go up to his place. We stayed until closing time. Then we walked to my place. She must have weighed 300 pounds. I wrote a story about her. In his recounting of the story published in the underground newspaper Open City during the 60s and included in the book Notes of a Dirty Old Man, he wrote, Then she really started to bounce and whirl. I hung on and tried to find the rhythm. She rotated pretty good, but it was rotate and then up and down and then back to rotate. I got the rhythm of the rotate, but on the top, up and down, I got thrown out of the saddle several times. I mean, the deck would be coming up as I hit it which is all right under ordinary conditions. But with her, as I hit the deck coming on, it simply caromed me completely out of the saddle and oftentimes almost out of the bed onto the floor. It doesn't sound like a good time. No, not particularly. (laughs) Yeah, that's not how I would describe uh, (laughs) satisfying. Yeah. In the morning, he and the woman woke up to find that the bed had totally collapsed during their escapades. Hank didn't know what would happen when the landlady saw it. He offered the fat lady some money, but she told him that she could not accept it. He was the first man in years to make her feel good. Hey, you know what? All right. Good for you, old gal. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. When he came home from his job the following evening, he passed the landlady and the cleaning woman who who made some comments about the bed. Hank walked into his room and saw that they had replaced his old wooden bed with a steel framed one. The landlady said, Let's see what you can do with this one. <laughs> wow. It's not all bad. He's having some fun. He's getting yeah. laid. Yeah. All right. So you, you know, the biggest, this is a, this is a point that I wanted to make and I'm glad that we, we got to it. The biggest complaint during the seventies and eighties about Bukowski was that his writing was borderline pornographic and mm. I think that that's a mischaracterization of what he's doing, even when he's writing about sex. I yeah. think he is too self-aware and too has too much of a sense of humor about himself to enter into that. Mm-hmm. He in in that in that portion that he talks about in, in what you just read, Kevin, where he says that she felt good about herself. That that's the opposite sort of of strictly pornographic writing. That's not that 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 wouldn't be you know right. he's not writing he's not writing in order to titillate. He's he's not. Right. He loves talking about sex, and there could be lots of reasons why that's true. And we talked about some of them already tonight. Mm-hmm. But that that's not the equation i think it i think it's misrepresentation to say that he's yeah. he's writing pornographically his yeah, style can be at times a little cartoonish yeah well, that, that part a... sounds cartoonish for sure yeah mm-hmm. yeah he's very funny he's a very funny yeah. writer 
Uh, and it was, he was a very funny man. I mean, you could call him a raconteur. I mean, he, he you know, he'd be somebody you'd, you'd want to sit at a bar and kind of like see what, be a fly on the wall in a bar where he was a guy would be fascinating. And mm-hmm. they eventually tried to, they made Barfly into a movie that he didn't particularly right. think was a good representation, but he had that kind of a life where it's like, hell, let's make a movie about this guy at bars. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah, he was a, you have to be able to tell jokes and tell good stories mm-hmm. and have a good sense of humor about yourself. I mean, if you're, you live in a life like this and your first lay is a 300 pound woman, yeah, you know, you tell the story, break in the bed. That's funny. I mean, you know, everybody else you know, gets laid when they're 16, 17 in high school at the prom in the back of the seat, the car, whatever else is going on for him. It was at a boarding house. Right. Drunk as a skunk, big woman. He couldn't, he couldn't stay. Yeah, it it is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it also, you know, I think some people could take umbrage in that the writing isn't very kind to this woman, but it's not, um, he's not overly demeaning her, right? Right. Like he's not going into like, you know, trying to depict her as repulsive or in any way. He's just like, yeah, he's a fat lady. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's as much about him as it is about her. Right. And and going yeah. on his his earlier the women, you'll I think you'll you if you watch that documentary, you'll see. Uh but he describes this further in that where he he says that he claimed that like after he got he got laid this first time, I think it was this this time, he couldn't find his wallet. So he claims he yelled at her and said, you bitch, you stole my wallet, blah, blah, blah. And she said, no, no, and went out crying. He kicked her out. And then he's looking around the room and there it is. And there's his wallet. Mm. And as he describes it, he goes down to the bar to try to find her, Mm. to apologize, Mm. walks in. And he asks the bartender for this woman by name. and, And he goes, we can't serve you here. Oh, he wow. gets kicked out of the bar because she's a regular and she right. went and told the bartender what happened and you're done. You're out. Right. So it has this, it has this almost like a, like a, like a Chaplin-esque quality of the tramp, but rendered through a really like horrific American down and out, you know, skid row aesthetic. Right. He's right. on the move again, right? Yeah. When he's telling these stories, you know, a, 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 like a, a starving dog going from door to door. And he's not just depicting a scene of being down and out. He is as despicable right. as anybody else in there, right? He's a member of this. This isn't anthropological. Right, right, 100%. Uh, yeah, and he, in that interview, he calls her poor old girl, you mm. would say. he's It's too much pathos for it to be just pornographic. I think right. that's a that's simple... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. All right, so... Good times. Moving on. Uh, We're getting to the early writing. When Hank was age 24, his short story, Aftermath of a Lengthy Rejection Slip, was published in Story Magazine. And that... Okay, I got to give a little background on this. This is ad hoc, but the editor of that magazine would send him nice rejection letters, like real rejection letters, not form letters. Hey... Keep trying, do this, you know, personal, you know, personal letters. And the way he got this rejection was like, you know, or this acceptance was in fact, hey, you know, we we regret to send you back these. However, we're accepting this one. Hmm. And it is a story about the editor of that magazine. <laughs> so it's a little meta. 
They mm-hmm. didn't publish it in like the main part of the magazine. It was published sort of in the back, but it's a little bit of a, it's funny. And mm-hmm. he caught the editor's eye by writing the editor into a story about mm-hmm. getting a rejection letter from that editor. So yeah, fun. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That's an interesting creative decision, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and very telling of, again, of his humor. Now he got $25 for that. And that meant something. Whoa. Wait, oh, he got paid? Whoa. Yeah, he got paid for his short story. Like a I've, never even heard, at, I've never even heard yeah, of this happening before. It can happen. <laughs> yeah, Jason, Brad, and I haven't had the talk yet, so we got to talk about <laughs> Mindful. Uh, <laughs> he still thinks Santa's real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's, he's delivering rejection letters, Brad. Santa, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I remember reading in, in this book that he was, he was eating like five, you could get a meal for five cents. So 25 bucks at that time. I mean, it was literally, you know, he could eat off of that. Yeah. Um, all right. So two years later, another short story, 20 Tanks from Castle Down was published by the Black Sun Press in issue three of Portfolio in Intercontinental Quarterly, which is a limited run, loose leaf broadside collection uh put out in 1946 hmm. his influences included john fonte knut homson celine hemingway jeffers henry miller dh lawrence dostoevsky dufu lee by who i don't know and james thurber hmm. uh and <laughs> do you have something on hemingway uh, Jason, that you want to talk about and his influence on Hank? I do. So he talks about this even as a child in Ham on Rye, where he mentions that. And I closed out of that tab. Well, I I'll just I'll just recount it, where he talks about how Hemingway was a lodestar in terms of both opening his eyes to what literature can be and stylistically what literature is. And I, w- I want to talk about that because I think this goes back to what Brad was saying earlier about that, that sense of reporting that, um, that carries through Bukowski's work. You know, I don't think that Bukowski's style as a poet relates directly to a poetry tradition. I think Bukowski's style as a poet relates directly to these um, early century short story writers that he's reading, particularly Hemingway. You know, the old truism of the short declarative subject, verb, direct object sentences that Hemingway supposedly sort of molded into fiction is exactly what Bukowski is doing with his poetry. He's writing very declaratively. He's writing very directly. He's writing with a lot of action verbs. All of those old saws of journalism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that one of the few classes that he did take at LA City College was in journalism. So he sort of has this, you know, this background 
background as to how to form language like that. And I think it, that it really shows. Um, and I think that Hemingway is definitely, he writes poetry as if Hemingway wrote poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't, oh, go ahead, Kevin. No, I just I think that's it. I think you you nailed that. I hadn't really thought about it, but yes, and he, and he writes in the vernacular. He's not mm-hmm. putting on airs. He's very direct. He doesn't use a word that's more inflated than the word he needs. Right. And he also isn't afraid to just tell you a good story. Right. Like one of the one of the poems he reads in that documentary is about going to the track, having to have a beer shit, shitting and losing his wallet in the crapper. Right. But trying to get his his money in for the for the race. Yeah. And at the last minute he gets the soggy bill in for his horse and then the horse it, nothing comes to the horse. The horse right. runs out anyway. Yeah. Right? And you could draw a little it's it's like the kind of story somebody would tell you at a bar. Yeah. 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 For sure. Right. But who well, and I, you know, in the, the list of influences you rattled off, I don't remember them exactly. I think the only po- actual po- person in there known for their poetry is Jet Robinson Jeffers. I don't, right. If I remember the list right there, the rest of them are all novelists and short story writers. So it's possible he wasn't even really reading poetry. Well, and he was writing, largely writing stories, and then we'll come to it. But a little later, he had a. Uh, he became very ill. He had a like an ulcer and ended up in the hospital. And it was only after coming out of the hospital, having felt like he nearly died, that then he sat down and and it all came out poetry. Yeah. He describes it like it came out of him that way. He didn't try. He didn't think in the hospital, oh, I'm a poet now. It just sort of happened is how he described it. Hmm. But yeah, we got to, uh, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. <clears throat> I, I was just going to say, we've got to get on to kind of the first great love of his life, uh, Jane Cooney Baker. Uh, So I'm going to read a little bit here. Late in 1946, he wandered around the country. Uh, His wanderings came to an end. Uh, Even though he liked the bar scene in Philly, L.A. was where he belonged. He continued drinking as heavily as during the war years and occasionally wrote a short story. One of the bars he frequented, the Glenview on Alvarado Street, became like a second home. You're a real drinker. You you get a bar that's, uh, yeah. On a hot summer night walking along Alvarado, uh, one could easily deliriously mix palm trees and half-dilapidated storefronts with the lumidity, uh, excuse me, humidity and the dark, long dream of L.A. So one evening, he's at this bar and he sees an older uh, woman sitting by herself. He glanced at her, turned away, jingled the change in his pockets, and found himself looking back again, noting her blonde hair and mournful blue eyes with the slightest hint of pouches forming under them and a way of gesturing that told him she had once been a very classy person. She must have been a real beauty, he told himself. A sense of lost glamour and an aura of good things long gone radiated from her. Oddly enough, no one had approached her. One guy sloshed the whiskey around in his shot glass while two veterans of the L.A. night huddled in drunken conversation. Normally, one or another would have introduced themselves to an unescorted female. Curiosity led Hank to ask the bartender why no one talked to her. Because she's crazy, he said. Hank ordered a drink and moved over to the unoccupied stool next to her. The woman looked straight ahead, not acknowledging his presence. He stared into his drink 
then at the mirrored wall and back to his drink. I hate people, don't you? She said. <laughs> he as he he uh, told her that he, it wasn't so much hatred as he not uh, as not wanting to be around them. He ordered two scotch and waters. Listen, he said, what do you do? I drink. He smiled. And then he went on to say, I'm out of money. You really don't have any money? No money, no job. Come with me, she said. <laughs> and then they go down. And this is this is recounted in um, uh, Barfly, I think, sort of almost like line for line. And this is how he picks up Jane Cooney Banker. And... I'll read a little bit more just to give you a picture of who she was. This was his first great love. Jane Cooney Baker's history was soon revealed to Hank. She came from Carlsbad, New Mexico and was 10 years older than him. Ah, age gap. Mm -hmm. We got another, we got another one coming mm -hmm. the other direction later. Mm -hmm. Her well-to-do mother had been too busy with her social life to be burdened with caring for her child. At an early age, she found herself in an orphanage operated by an order of nuns. Well, there, she and the other girls would jump out of the dormitory windows at night and run to the vegetable garden to dig up radishes because they were served very little food. She had no friends to speak of, but when she was 18, Jane met a wealthy young man from Connecticut by the name of Baker. Hank doesn't know the circumstances of how they met, but believes it must have been in a cocktail lounge. They married, had two children, and lived a life of luxury for several years. Hank seems to recall hearing Jane say that her husband was an attorney with a flourishing practice, at least in the, in the beginning. Unfortunately, he turned into an alcoholic and brought Jane along with him. The marriage ended up failing and she lost her kids and they soon began living together. And uh, that was, you know, so we're, we got to have a little bit of Jane uh, because she'll figure heavily, not just in his life in terms of love, but also he would write poetry to her. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So let's get a little more. Failing to break into the literary world, he grew disillusioned with the publication process and quit writing for almost a decade, a time that he referred to as a 10-year drunk. These lost years formed the basis for his later semi-autobiographical chronicles, and there he fictionalized uh, versions of himself through an alter ego, Henry Chinaski, right? Most of his fiction, if not all of it, is kind of like more or less autofiction, um, like the the novels anyway. Right. Some of his short stories are very, very funny. There's He's got a short story in... Um, Oh, what, what is it? I've got it right here. Hot water music. That's just about two absolute like assholes. Like a, I think it's like a painter and a sculptor or it's two painters and they just go out and they're just insufferable but because they're <laughs> getting a little bit of fame. People, you know, women throw themselves at them and it's just, mm -hmm. it's very, very funny, easy to read, but there's a little more depth to it than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, so during this period, uh, he continued living in LA working at a pickle factory for a short time. Um, if you want to see Bukowski laid onto film, the the one to watch, you, you almost can't get Barfly streaming right now, at least really? when I look. Yeah, it's hard to find. You have to get it on like Blu-ray or whatever. But Factotum, are you familiar with that one? Have you seen that, Brad? That is that the one with Matt Dillon? Yeah. 
Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Shot. It's good. Other yeah. than the fact that you make this handsome man stands in for Bukowski. But other than that, it's pretty good. Yeah. I feel like it, you know, captures the spirit of it pretty well. It's pretty amu- amusing. And it was shot in the Twin Cities. You can see it's, ah. it's right here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Okay. There's even an unfortunate jump cut where he's driving around downtown Minneapolis and they they jump cut to downtown St. Paul, as Whoa. he says. I found out she had a job as a chambermaid downtown. And I'm like, that's a different downtown. You're not fool. I had my day. Anyway. Yeah, that's all right. We'll give him a pass. It's it's a good, it's actually a pretty good movie. And it, it's a, it's interesting because he's such an LA writer mm-hmm. and they don't really, and he even mentions LA city college when he tries to get a journalism job in that film. Uh, but there's something about the twin cities that, it works for that film. It feels mm-hmm. right. Uh, in any case, so he goes on this 10-year drunk, and he works at a pickle factory, which you can see in the film Factotum, and he would roam around a little bit, rooming houses. Now, in the early 1950s, he took a job as a, a fill-in letter carrier with the post mm-hmm. office in L.A., but resigned just before he reached three years' service. In 1955, he was treated for a near-fatal bleeding ulcer. After leaving the hospital, he began to write poetry. And this is sort of the gap between Jane, who we just described, and who the woman who would become his first wife, Barbara Fry. So let me take you into the hospital a little bit. Um, After an uncomfortable night, a nurse finally appeared. Hank was taken for an x-ray. A mad scene ensued when she was too weak to stand upright for the technician. After two attempts at getting a proper x-ray, the technician told the nurse to take take Hank away. He had just wasted two negatives. He told Hank that the film cost a lot of money and he didn't want to waste anymore. All through this, his pain intensified. Surrendering to the situation seemed like the best course to take, but when he was taken into a new ward, he rebelled against the nurses who seemed oblivious that he was suffering. He kept spitting up blood, much of it Mm -hmm. on the floor because he could not always make it to the bathroom in time. A nurse finally came to his bed and yelled at him for making her job difficult. He responded with a nasty comment, after which the nurse lifted his head and slapped him across the face a couple times. (laughs) Florence Nightingale, I love you, he told her. One of the nurses told him that they could not give him any blood because he didn't have any blood credits. You have a bleeding ulcer, she said, and it is very serious. The nurse then asked if he wanted to see a priest. He had told the admissions clerk that he was a Catholic. Good man. Mm. Hank remembered his father boasting about giving blood to the county's blood bank, so Hank gave the nurse's father's name and phone number. Two days later, Hank was given a massive blood transfusion. It was a mad scene. I really thought I was dying, but my gracious father decided to spare my life. After the transfusion, a priest visited Hank's bedside. Hank informed the priest that his services were not needed, not because Hank thought he would pull through, but because he had no faith in God. Jane came to the hospital with Hank's father. Henry stood off to one side, smiling as Jane stumbled drunken across the room to Hank. Lover, oh, lover boy, she said. Hank accused his father of deliberately getting Jane drunk before coming for the visit. I know what you've done, Hank said. It was on purpose to prove a point. Lover, don't you want to see me, Jane went on. 
Henry showed no sympathy for his son. He said, I told you she was no good. Hank answered, you son of a bitch. One more word out of you and I'm going to take this needle out of my arm and get up and whip the shit out of you. Then Hank told them both to leave. The next morning, he was released from the hospital. A nurse gave him a list of foods to eat. A doctor told him he would die if he drank. Just before Hank left, another doctor recommended an operation. You're out of your mind, Hank said. Home from the hospital, he found it difficult to return to his post office routine. He couldn't take it anymore. For years, he had been persecuted by a supervisor whose every word and deed could be found in the postal regulations. Hank stood out as the rebel, the man to break. But when he didn't knuckle under, this company man began writing him up with increasing regularity and sending him out on the most difficult assignments. Uh, So Hmm. he resigns and then soon afterward sat down at his typewriter, long unused, and began typing out poems. Hmm. He didn't know where they came from. And we've got some of these poems to read. I'm excited. He didn't know where they came from, but but, but believed they were probably spurred on by his near brush with death. It was some kind of madness. I didn't even think about what I was going to write. It was just automatic. This unexpected, totally unplanned reaffirmation of his writing excited him. For a moment, he thought of writing stories again. This didn't happen. The poetry came too fast, and each one made such a complete final statement that he no longer had the desire to venture into prose. At the same time that the poetry burst forth, Jane introduced him to the racetrack in the belief that it would take his mind off liquor. When she mentioned going to Hollywood, <laughs> that's maybe not, oh no, yeah, that's maybe not. I don't. They have liquor there, don't they? Right. They yeah. Yeah. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Charles, I think you should try crack. Right. I'm not saying it's going to solve your problems. <laughs> yeah. You got a gambling problem? Have you heard of crypto? <laughs> right. <laughs> Get your mind off of the casino gambling. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. talk about Litecoin. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's hilarious. He didn't even know what horse racing was. And uh, she explained it, told him about betting. And he said, is there one open now? I think Hollywood Park is open. Let's make it, he replied. And, um, you know, they would get there and he said, Jesus, it sounds kind of stupid to them, to me. All these people, mindless masses of people hovering together, watching these animals go around the tra- track. I don't quite get it. Maybe something is wrong, uh, wrong with me. But uh, he picked three winners on his first trip. One of them paid $50. It seemed easy to him. And he he went on a winning streak after that. Uh, and that only helped to increase his daily intake of liquor. So mm-hmm. as we were, were chuckling, that didn't really work. Yeah. Um, and he loved the track. He would go to the track, I think all his life after that, he just wow. he thought it was great. Um, one day Jane returned from her job and accused him of making love with a woman who lived in the back apartment. He explained that she had come over with the intention of going to bed with him, but that nothing had happened. Hell, she's just a fat slob. I love you, baby, he assured Jane. <laughs> it was true that he had no interest in the woman. The neighbor had knocked in the door several times before with the sole purpose of enticing Hank. She lifted her dress up, showing her legs, but he didn't respond. Jane refused to believe him, no matter how he tried convincing her otherwise. Moreover, Jane's daughter had shown up pregnant. 
Jane told Hank that he would have to move out so she could devote her time to helping her daughter. So he's that's kind of fallen fallen to pieces. Mm-hmm. And now he's starting to write poetry. And I have one of the very earliest poems, and I know I know Jason has a few here. Jason, you don't happen to have the poem uh layover. I'll no, read it. I- no, okay. No worries. I'll, I'll read it, and then I want to introduce Barbara Fry, and then we'll read some of the. Uh, you'll read some of the poems. So this is one of his very early, early poems. Um, making love in the sun, in the morning sun, in a hotel room above the alley, where poor men poke for bottles. Making love in the sun, making love by a carpet redder than our blood. Making love while the boys sell headlines and Cadillacs making love by a photograph of Paris and an open pack of Chesterfields, making love while other men, poor fools, work. It's not okay. a half-bad poem. Okay. It's it's not a work of genius necessarily, but yeah. it, it's got it's some very, striking images. And yeah. 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 And then the, re- the repetition and uh, yeah. All right. I like it. Not knowing where to send his work. He purchased a magazine called Trace, edited in LA. Each issue contained an updated list of little magazines and poetry journals. He brought the magazine home, closed his eyes, and ran his fingers down the list and landed on a magazine in Texas called Harlequin. Judging by the title, he imagined a little old woman who kept canaries editing the magazine from a small wooden frame house on a tranquil side street and specializing in rhyming poems. But I said, fuck it and mailed my poems off. (laughs) Many such cases. Yeah. 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 I've been there. Then this letter came back. The editor, a woman named Barbara Fry wrote to tell the poet that she had never read work like his and that he was a genius. He was doing better than the first round of short story submissions he had sent during the early twenties. So now he and Fry start exchanging letters and things heated up. Barbara warned him, no man will ever marry me. I can't turn my neck from shoulder to shoulder. And Mm -hmm. she's, and I I don't want to make too much light, but she's a very, it's an awkward looking woman. If you see a picture of her, she has no neck essentially. Mm -hmm. And she's very short there in the pictures of them. It's a very odd couple. It looks Mm -hmm. like as a couple, they look like something out of Alice in Wonderland a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know, um, got you know, God lover. Um, Hank wrote that he had a scarred face and compared himself to a tiger. We will march through the world together, he wrote. She sent him a few photographs and he thought she looked pretty. In letter after letter, Fry kept referring to the hopelessness of her situation. One night, while in a drunken state, he wrote, For Christ's sake, I'll marry you. Having oh, never met her, pictures only, poems and pictures. LA and Texas. Uh-huh. And he sent it to her. The recipient of his offer, however, took it as a serious proposal. She sent more photos. Feeling like a martyr, he thought that at least he would be able to make her happy and resigned himself to his fate. As he thought over what he had done, he reasoned that if you can bring happiness to one other person in the world, then life is worthwhile. They decided that she should take a bus to LA and they would go to Las Vegas to be married in a quick civil ceremony. When the bus from Texas arrived at the station, Hank watched closely as the passengers filed off one by one. 
Finally, he saw this cute, vivacious blonde who radiated sex and didn't seem much older than 20. Are you Barbara? He asked. Yes, I guess you're Bukowski. I guess I am. Shall we Shall we go? All right. As they drove to his place, she told him that she had almost gotten off the bus and returned home. It's kind of scary, she said. I know, he answered. We'll just take it day by day. So they stop off for beer, whiskey. They go to his place. They drink. Listen, let's go to bed, he said late in the evening. Not until we're... <laughs> Not until we're married, she answered. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, simpler times. We used yeah. to be a proper country. Yeah, yeah. You waited. You, you waited until you waited you did until the crazy you... marriage in, in Las Vegas. Right. She's, yeah. she's got some dignity. Yeah. Um. The next morning, they drove to Las Vegas. Trip across the desert was one of the quickest he ever took. He just wanted to get there. And uh, this is so funny. I just wanted to get there, sign the fucking papers, say what had to be said, and get the hell back home. It was eight hours going and eight hours coming back. Oh, man. Through all that desert, and it was worth it. We must have stayed in bed about 15 hours. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. This goes on. Barbara turned out to be about as far from Hank's image of a little old lady editor as possible. The truth is she demanded so much sex that it nearly drove him crazy. Although it turned out that she really couldn't turn her neck, it never interfered with their sex life. <laughs> I mean, that rocks. It doesn't really come up that much, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can, you, you can work around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I, I'm kind of. I mean, I'm, I'm. I don't know. There's something very sweet about this. Yeah, somehow. there's there's some good stuff. I'm gonna go on a little more. Yeah. She decided she wanted to take him uh, to see Wheeler, Texas. Ah, yes. He quit his job uh, as a... Brad, look up where Wheeler is. I will. He quit his job as a shipping clerk, and they left for her hometown. According to Hank, Barbara's grandfather, Toby Fry, practically owned the small town and had even given Barbara her own small house. While they lived in Wheeler, Hank was a marked man. (laughs) He was supposed to be the guy who had married all this money. The gold digger. Everywhere he went in town, her family had money. People Mm. perceived him as the cool city slicker who had gotten the money. He deliberately affected certain characteristics, such as walking around with a swagger in his gait and smoking big cigars. The (laughs) irony was that her family wasn't all that rich. Uh, Tom Fry, Barbara's cousin, a retired airline pilot who lives in the Wheeler area at time of writing anyway, recalls that the family members were not millionaires. There was one working oil well on Toby's place, but it didn't bring in much money. Barbara's father owned a crop dusting business and at one time had 70 planes. He was probably wealthier than his father. In any case, uh, where's yeah, Wheeler? Wheeler's, Wheeler's uh, way, well up into the panhandle on the east side of the panhandle, almost Oklahoma. I almost mean, Oklahoma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll have to ask Aaron Gwynn if he's ever been through Wheeler. Yeah. I have, yeah. Who knows? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so now he's married. This marriage, how long do you think this marriage lasts, Brad? What do you think? Six months? Uh, a year? I think they make it a couple of years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let me let me read on, and then we'll get to the poems. Hmm. In 1957, Barbara, well, this is one way to get published, by the way. Yeah, Writing well, advice from Art of Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> marry, marry the editor. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1957, she published eight of his poems in Harlequin. He was the magazine's co-editor at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have, Jason, do you have a poem called Death Wants More Death? I want to, I'll read this section. One of the, one of the poems here is called Death Wants More Death, which I think is quite metal. <laughs> here it is. Yeah. Death wants more death and its webs are full. I remember my father's garage, how childlike I would brush the corpses of flies from the windows they had thought were escape. Their sticky, ugly, vibrant bodies shouting like dumb, crazy dogs against the glass. Okay. Only to spin and flit in that second larger than hell or heaven onto the edge of the ledge. Yeah. All All right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're getting we're getting somewhere. Uh and we're and we're thinking about his father. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let's get into what happens with him and Barbara. A rented cottage on a hilltop on the outskirts of downtown became their home. With Barbara working, Hank concentrated on the race racetrack, his writing and drinking. Ah, yes. Well, someone's got to do the drinking. Somebody's got to do the the hard work. <laughs> He didn't love Barbara, and often he chuckled inwardly at how he had plunged headlong into the, this male marriage. They did a lot of things together, such as attending art classes at L.A. City College and editing Harlequin, but Hank grew restless. As it turned out, so did Barbara. Well, it sounds like she wants a lot of sex. Yeah. More and more, on coming home from her clerical job at the sheriff's department, she would tell Hank about this suave, sophisticated man she had met. Barbara became obsessed with the man, portraying him as a real gentleman. She told Hank how her friend had suffered caring for a sick wife who finally died. Listen, Barbara, Hank said one evening, I bummed all over the country. You know, people play games in offices. They're out of their minds with boredom, you know? Whatever you feel for this man doesn't mean a thing. Mm. Keen observer. Yeah. A week or so later at 7 a.m., Hank was awakened by a man who served him divorce papers. He took them, read them over, and went into the bedroom where he awakened Barbara. I'm sorry, Hank, she said. He told her that she shouldn't have gone to the trouble of serving papers. He would have agreed right away to a divorce. They made love one last time. Mm. Then Hank took his suitcase of belongings, drove off in his Plymouth, which she had given him. And began looking for a vacancy sign. Uh, mm. They were divorced in March of 1958. Their marriage had lasted two years, four months, and 20 days. The decree included the following. The 1957 Plymouth automobile will be awarded to the defendant, conditional of his paying the balance due on same. Hank kept the car well into the 60s. On rare occasions, he heard from Barbara, who ended up marrying an Eskimo and moving to Alaska. Huh. She's having adventures. Yeah. Well, I mean, good yeah. for her. That's okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, and let's see here. Yeah. She's so actually got a pretty interesting. She's actually a pretty interesting person, really. Yeah, she's quite a yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. You, yeah. She'd be an interesting subject of her own. Now, yeah. I hope you're having a good time. This is the Art of Darkness podcast, artofdarkpod.com. Jason's coming along for the ride. We really appreciate it. Jason, I appreciate your insights. You've got some poems, some of these early poems to read. Yes. All right, let's yes. do it. Two poems from 1959. First Great. one is called Dow Jones Down. How can we endure oh. Oh. a Verlene 
This is a hungry band that likes to work and count and knows the special laws that likes to sit in parks thinking of nothing valuable. This is where the stricken bagpipes blow upon the chalky cliffs, where faces go mad as sunburned violets, where brooms and ropes and torches fail, squeezing shadows, where walls come down in mass. Tomorrow, the bankers set the time to close the gates against our flood and prevaricate the waters. Bang, bang the time. Remember now, the flowers are opening in the wind, and it doesn't matter finally, except as a twitch in the back of the head. When back in our broad land, dead again, we walk among the dead. See, and that... That's not what you expect at this point. Nope. Right? He's writing about Verlaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, I mean, it's called Dow Jones Down. How mm. can we endure? How can we talk about roses or Verlaine? This is a hungry band that likes to work ad count. I mean, again, Good. just, yeah, it's, it, it, people have all these, all these ideas about Bukowski. And then you read one of those, you go, uh, yeah. All right, go on, Jason. Go <laughs> yeah, on. That's good. I like it. Okay. So here's a second poem, also from 58. It's called On Seeing an Old Civil War Painting with My Love. The cannoneer is dead, and all the troops, the conceited drummer boy, dumber than the tombs, lies in a net of red, and under leaves, bugs twitch antennae, deciding which way to move, under the cool umbrella of decay, the wind riles down like thin water and reaches under clothing, shifting and sorry. Clothing anchored with heavy bones and noonday sleep, like men gone down on ladders, resting. Yet an hour ago, tree shadow and man shadow showed their outline against the sun. Yet now, Not a man amongst them can single out the reason that moved them down toward nothing. And I think mostly of some woman far off, arranging important jars on some second shelf and humming a dry, sunlit tune. Section two. Outside, the quick storm turns the night slowly backwards and sends it shifting to old shores. And everywhere are bones rib bones and light and grass, grass leaning left. And we hump out backs against the wet like living things. And this one with me now holds my yearning like a packet, slips it into her purse with her powders and potions, pulls up a sheer stocking, chatters, touches her hair. It's raining, oh damn it all, it's raining. And on the battlefield, the rocks are wet and cool. The fine grains of rock glint moonfire, and she curses under a small green hat like a crown and walks like a gawky marionette into the streams of rain. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Dang. All right. There's there's something more going on here uh, than meets the eye, for yeah. sure. And yeah. we maybe haven't tracked his whole development into this. Uh, but these these hit hard. You've got another one, don't you? 
Yeah, it's one of the very, very early ones from 1946, actually. Nice. Let me... Yeah, you've been... And these were all published in Rooming House Madrigals, which was a collection that came out in 1988 of his collected poems from the 40s to the 60s. Nice. This is called Object Lesson. It is always best, of course, to push it right below the heart. Don't try to hit the bullseye. When seeking damage, aim for a large target and strike several times. He who pauses is one damn fool. I remember a discourse with a leper who suggested using hooks and pulleys. Not so, not so. Hmm. Uh, I froze. There, oh. Right. Not so, not so. He was very bitter. It is best to go for the eye, smash the cornea, blind him, then strangle him with rope. My mother suggested an old bathing cap down the throat. Not so, not so. Be safe, be wise. Tell him to seek the stars and he will kill himself with climbing. Tell him about Chatterton, the lawn, make suggestions, take your time. He will do it himself. There's no hurry. Time means nothing to you. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I like that There's, too. Yeah, it's more European sounding than I would expect. It yeah. sounds Bikettian or he's, it doesn't sound like the guy we've been describing. Right. No. And my familiarity, I guess, is with his later poetry, because this doesn't sound like the stuff I know at all, honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there you go. But, at, but at the same time, he's already what I find interesting is there's no early style, late style. It's early mm. subject matter, late subject matter. Mm. He's already mastered sort of how he's going to control the line on the page. These are short lines. They're very discursive. He's going one after another. Sometimes he's going to hit one word as a single line, mm. one word line. He's going against sort of what is popular in American poetry at the time. So if you think about poets like Anne Sexton or Robert Lowell coming out of a more Whitman-esque tradition, they're going to be using longer lines. And already Bukowski is saying that he wants economy when he is writing his, his poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think it's really interesting that, yes, subject matter, he's definitely more um, doing a existential sort of inward looking project here. But at the same time, his lines are very controlled. Hmm. Cool. cool. Very cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you for reading those. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have more as we go along. I think I'm going to read what's coming up here. Uh, so this will be fun. So several of his poems were published in the late fifties in gallows, a small poetry magazine that was only published briefly lasted for two issues. Like most podcasts, <laughs> uh, uh, the small avant-garde literary magazine, nomad uh, offered a home for early work. Their inaugural issue in 1959 had two of his poems. 
And a year later, Nomad published one of Bukowski's best-known essays, Manifesto, a call oh, for, hey. for the bingo card. <laughs> we got a manifesto, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Ring the bell. Uh, yeah, it's always a big deal when a manifesto shows yeah. up. I'm going to read this. Um, and it's just, as far as I can tell, it's just three pages. Uh the insurgency of criticism from a nosography on poets to a censorious dictum by certain university groups who write the laws of poetry and spawn with sumptuous grace and style their own puppeteers, these and their half-brethren and their perlu form a most deadly and snobbish poetic fixation. They create, record, and argue their own history charmed with the largesse of their chosen circumference. As you, of course, understand he's being satirical here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What the university critics have lost in pulling down the blinds around their little ivy world they have gained in direction and prestige. To the remainder of us, the unwashed, the loiterers in pool halls and back alleys, there remains a frustrated and discordant yammering. In order to inculcate a more heuristic force heuristic force perhaps a manifesto a gesture a gestation is necessary it is difficult for a single poet to stand against the university coterie perhaps we too must invent our own history and choose our own gods if our portion of american literature is to receive a hearing on some tomorrow our writers should acquaint themselves with the claustral intent and exercises of the campus group and let us be fair here. Many of our imprint are not only pretty well unwashed, but rather damn shoddily read as well. Damn shoddily read as readers and damn shoddily read as writers. Our saving factors are our lack of monstrous clannishness and a more hybrid emergence. Yet this emergence should be both shaped and amorphous with its own critics guide wiring and giving form and numerical integration, cultural insertion to our writers. This does not mean confirmation or confinement, but a transelementation of mixed voices into a more visible shape. The fresh air of a new culture, the magnetism and meaning of and hope, the exactness of our energies, these things haven't in any sense been harnessed or realized. And until they are, five or six old men, craggy and stetopigous, that is a tough one, stetopigous in university chairs will be the hierophants of our poetic universe. Okay. Somebody studied for the GRE. That yeah. is. Yeah. But it, you could, you could, understand what he's saying there he's basically saying the aca the academy and their the, those critics control american poetry we're over here doing our own thing they pay mm -hmm. us no mind but maybe mm -hmm. we need our own critics mm, for our yeah. own culture our own little magazines that we're doing our thing in right i think that it's an interesting point to make about how he is not aligned with he is not a beat he is not a confessional poet he has aspects of other schools of poetry that are contemporaneous with him, but he is outside of those spheres. And that's one of the things that he's responding to here. And sure, he'll, he'll because he's in LA, he'll run into Ferlinghetti and Ferlinghetti and him will have a relationship, but he's not part of that 
cadre. He's not right. part of the beat scene. And 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 you'll you're going to talk a little bit about his relationship with Ginsburg. I know Kevin, so that's that's going to be that's interesting. But and and one of the things that people tend to forget, even about the beats, is a lot of those guys came out of Columbia and were yep. very and we're very college educated. And I think in some ways that's also what he's responding to as well. And there's a difference between his small presses and the people that publish him and even some of the, you know, vanguard of, of poetry at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. Amen. All right. So we're going to move on a little bit. We'll hear a few more poems soon. We're going to get to what happens with Jane, his first love, and his own father. Let's see here. He would write up uh, some poems about Fry, too. The wife. Henry Bukowski Sr. passed away nine months after H Hank's divorce while he was in his kitchen reaching for a glass of water on the morning of December 4th of 1958. His death was completely unexpected since he had had no major medical problems. He was not too many years away from retirement. The old man's girlfriend had come to his house in Temple City, not far from the Santa Anita racetrack, knocked on the door and heard no answer. Standing on the porch a few minutes, she heard the sound of running water inside. She knocked again then, sensing something might be wrong, she ran to the neighbor for help. They managed to get into the house where they found him lying on the floor, glass in hand, kitchen sink overflowing. She called Hank immediately to inform him that his father had died. So it sounds like they must have, uh, they must have, uh, he must have gotten a, a divorce. Um, a feeling of relief swept over Hank when he heard of his father's death. He had been freed of a great burden. That's not what you want when you die. You don't want your kids to go, whew, <laughs> dodge the bullet there. Um, let's see. He busied himself with funeral arrangements, notice, notifying his father's friends. Then he went to his father's house in Temple City, a place he had passed close to on his way to Santa Anita, but rarely visited. So, uh, yeah, I see Brad's up and about. I want to make sure he gets this. He began sorting through his father's things. He went outside and watered the lawn in shrubbery. The neighbors came by, and then one by one, he started giving them household objects. As he later put it in a story, they left me the garden hose, the bed, the refrigerator and stove, and a roll of toilet paper. He inherited the house in Temple City, and uh, I think he sold the house for $16,000 and gambled and drank the money away as quickly as he could, partly as a protest against all that his father had stood for seeking wealth, owning several homes, and being finally secure. He had not seen much of his father or his mother before they died. Early in his, uh, his, his mother must have passed away between this. Early in his marriage to Barbara Fry, his parents came by one Christmas Eve. Henry Sr. complained about things. The Christmas tree lights weren't put on right. His son did not have a well-paying job. Unable to restrain himself, Hank told his father, get your ass out of the house. He told him to leave before he threw him out. His mother protested, saying, you can't talk to your father that way. But the old man had already stormed out to his car and was sitting there. Catherine Bukowski demanded that her son go out and apologize to his father. You can't just leave him sitting there, she said. 
Hank didn't respond. His mother repeated that he should tell his father he was sorry. Sorry for what? But he's all alone there, she said. I think it's time for you to leave too. So not a not a good way to leave mom and dad there. No. Um, yeah. So we got to circle back to Jane, the first girlfriend here briefly, uh, the first love. Um, all right. Uh, in this, by the night, by 1960, <laughs> he would, he would end up back in LA working for the post office as a letter filing clerk. And he would have that job for like a decade. Oh, and, okay. Okay. I was wondering right. when you said he was there a couple of years, I was like, man, in my head, it was like a whole. Yeah. yeah he okay. was like, a, he was like a part-time carrier. He was like a full-time carrier and then a part-time. And then he ended up being one of these people that would just like mail would come through and he would just put it where it needed to go. Slot, 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 slot. And, uh, he did that for almost a decade. Um, so we'll get to a few more of his poems about Jane. Uh, but I want to set us up for that. One day late in 1958, he ran into Jane. Whatever had been smart and attractive about her in the past decade no longer existed. Her body was flabby and her face looked much older. There had always been a vagueness about her. Now she seemed almost invisible. I saw you with that woman, Jane said, referring to Barbara. She's not your type. Yeah, well, she's gone now. Jane told him that she had lost touch with her daughter. She didn't say exactly why, but Hank figured it must have been her drinking. I'm all alone, Hank. I don't have anybody. Mainly out of pity, Hank began to see her on a regular basis, spending the night in her furnished room in an apartment building at Beverly in Vermont. She drank more than ever, still going on about how hopeless people were, but the fire had gone. She evoked strong feelings of lost love, pity, and guilt in her former boyfriend. He wanted to help her. But when she brought up the idea that they try living together again, he couldn't go for it. She carried with her a sense of overwhelming sadness, which made Hank uncomfortable and nostalgic for their vanished life together. He had enough bad feelings to deal with. The burden of another person's crippled emotions was too much for him to handle. Left with no other alternative, Hank stopped seeing her. This older woman with mournful eyes once was his muse, not for love poems, but his lines were definitely informed by the years they had been together. His aspirations to live and to express the profane sacredness of the commonplace had been hammered into her consciousness, his consciousness, in part by her companionship. People could be happy together without being consumed by greed or enslaved by middle-class values. After leaving Jane, he returned to the Postal Service, beginning a 12-year run sorting mail that ended in 1970. Low pay and horrible working conditions were a reality, but he desperately needed a regular paycheck. Uh, so he he goes on and he does that. Uh, it was his writing that saved him when he heard that Jane had been hospitalized for excessive drinking. Her landlady had given her a job cleaning up the rooms when she couldn't pay the rent. The tasks were not that difficult, but Jane had long ago lost the ability to do any kind of work. Her hands shook, her back hurt. She had trouble going up and down stairs. For reasons unknown to Hank, the realtor who had helped her in past years was now out of her life. The little money she received went for liquor. Even so, the news of her hospitalization and imminent death shocked him. They had spent nearly a decade together. So, like, oh. that's a, about a marriage. And yeah. he didn't want to believe that this woman who had gone through so much pain was dying at the age of 49. 
Wow. He entered her hospital room to find her semi-comatose. It was so clean in there and quiet. I saw her lying in bed, unaware that I was there. He walked up to her quietly, bent over, kissed her lips, and whispered her name over and over again. She opened her eyes and said, I knew it would be you. The several hours he sat at her bedside deeply affected him. When it came time to leave, he bent over and kissed her forehead, then drove to her apartment and found several unopened bottles of liquor given as Christmas gifts by the people whose rooms she cleaned. Enough. Had she not been hospitalized to have killed her. When Jane died in 1962, Hank contacted her son who lived in Texas and made plenty of money in business, though he never sent any, any to his mother. He came to L.A. while Hank continued making arrangements for the funeral, even paying for it himself, thinking that Jane's son would take care of buying the headstone. Hank ordered a heart-shaped floral wreath for which he paid $15, quite a sum in those days. The men who brought it leaned the wreath up against a tree since the stilts it came with did not work properly. While the casket was being lowered, a wreath fell forward. The wreath fell forward on the ground. Jane's son, a cold and impersonal character, never came through with a headstone. And we've got a poem for her, which mm. Jason has. You care to read this? I I would love to. So this is written in 1962. It's called For Jane, With All the Love I Had, Which Was Not Enough. I pick up the skirt. I pick up the sparkling beads in black. This thing that moved once around flesh. And I call God a liar. I say anything that moved like that are new, my name, could never die, and the common verity of dying. And I pick up her lovely dress, all her loveliness gone. And I speak to all the gods, Jewish gods, Christ gods, chips of blinking things, idols, pills, bread, fathoms, risks, unknowledgeable surrender rats in the gravy of two gone quite mad without a chance hummingbird knowledge hummingbird chance i lean upon this i lean on all of this and i know her dress upon my arm but they will not give her back to me wow. yeah that's how it goes hard yeah you got another one yeah this also this is from 63 entitled remains things are good as i am not dead yet and the rats move in beer cans paper sacks shuffle like small dogs and her photographs are stuck onto a painting by a dead german and she too is dead and it took 14 years to know her and if they give me another 14 i will know her yet her photos stuck over the glass neither move nor speak, but I even have her voice on tape and she speaks some evenings and she again, so real, she laughs, says the thousand things, the one thing I always ignored, this will never leave me, that I have love and love died, a photo and a piece of tape is not much. I have learned late, but give me 14 days or 14 years I will kill any man who would touch or take whatever's left. Yeah, there it is, too. I would kill any man. Yeah. yeah. All right. And one more for Jane here. So this was written in 1963 as well. And it's just for Jane. 
225 days under grass, and you know more than I. They have long taken your blood. You are a dry stick in a basket. Is this how it works? In this room, the hours of love still make shadows. When you left, you took almost everything. I kneel in the nights before tigers that will not let me be. What you were will not happen again. The tigers have found me, and I do not care. Yeah, I mean, so he's writing these into the 60s, uh, early 60s. Again, defying, I think, even the portrait we've painted of him. You don't, these come out of left field, and there's a rich, serious inner life happening here, uh, and clearly a reader as well, and largely self molded like a man yeah his own poet as you as you said yeah thank you so much for reading those uh jason yeah awesome all right we'll have some more poetry as we go along and uh, i think we're gonna end up reading a little bit from one of his novels too uh brad how are you doing you hanging in there yeah i'm good man this this er this earlier poetry is a surprise i'm kind of processing it it's 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 interesting it's and it's I, i'm not going to go on about it at length but i'll tell you i am deep in emily dickinson territory and there's more in the middle of the venn diagram here than i was expecting oh brad this <laughs> I, I didn't know we would get to this yeah i had a professor in my uh graduate work that said there are two schools of American poetry. There's the Whitman School and the Dickinson School. Mm-hmm. And you choose who you follow, either the Whitman School or the Dickinson School. Mm-hmm. And when I went into doing this research, I would have said Charles Bukowski was definitely of the Whitman School. Right. You're absolutely right, Brad. He yeah. is entirely within the, the Dickinson School. And that's that comes across really, really strongly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And these poems you're, you're reading. Yeah. I mean, the violence, the intensity of the, of the feeling, but, but there's a certain circumscription. Yeah. There's, uh, again, I don't want to go on at length about it, but, but I think there's an interesting pair. We just, Kevin and I did not plan to do Bukowski and Dickinson for any Bukowski Dickinson relationship purposes. It was just, these were the people on the list in, in right. that order. And now we're like, now we're like, oh man, we're, we're like, actually they we're yeah. suspending some story about American poetry between yeah. the two of them. It's very cool. The, the, the same poet who wrote these poems would mm-hmm. also write the poem or the little story in a poem type shape about mm-hmm. again, losing his wallet in the crapper. Right. So right, right. talk about, talk about range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and as far I, as I know, Dickens Emily Dickinson didn't write anything. Sure, about she that. probably yeah. never, never uh, <laughs> threw a threw a ten spot on the ponies, though. Right? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, well, I can't Very wait for cool. the Dick- Dickinson Very cool. episode. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're heading into uh, hour four of the Bukowski mm-hmm. episode with a uh, poet Jason Gallagher. We're gonna bring it in. It's gonna be good. It's gonna, probably gonna be under five hours, I think. And then we're going to come back for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. I'll hit it again at the end. If you like what we're doing, support what we're doing. This is real independent media. This is a couple of guys with mic, you know, microphones in our faces at home. We get great guests. 
friends, poets, they read poetry for you. What more do you want? And you get to learn about uh, a great American writer, Charles Bukowski, you probably had some ideas about. Mm-hmm. If you if you haven't read him before, if you haven't read all of his stuff, it's very hard to read all of his stuff. He wrote so okay. much. There's a lot. So yeah. anyway, we hope you're enjoying it and we hope you appreciate it. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's move on. A uh, fellow named Evie Griffith, uh, Griffith uh, published Bukowski's first separately printed publication, a broadside titled His Wife, the Painter. And a broadside is literally just one sheet of paper with a poem on it. Simple, broadside, broadside, easy, but still milestone. Uh, the event was uh, this event was followed by Hearst Press's publication of Flower Fist and Bestial Whale, Bukowski's first chapbook of poems, uh, in October of 1960. His wife, the painter, and three other broadsides, uh, formed the centerpiece of Hearst. Presses Coffin One, an innovative small poetry publication consisting of a pocketed folder containing 42 broadsides and lithographs, which was published in 1964. And just to be crystal clear, nobody's making any money here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and I don't know what kind of money Bukowski, Bukowski would be getting for this, but hardly almost anything. Yeah. Almost nothing. Yeah. Um, John and Louise Webb. Publishers of the literary magazine The Outsider featured some of his poetry, and he kept getting more, you know, da-da-da. There's a press called Lujan Press. The web's published his It Catches My Heart in Its Hands in 1963 and Crucifix in a Death Hand in 1965. And this is where he would meet Francis, who... In the documentary I've mentioned a few times, pops up as an older woman for the documentary, like with a right. full kind of, she has like half a beard, <laughs> like in the documentary. Okay. She's got like a white, white beard, you know, hey, good for her. But oh. it's, you don't see that very often on a right. woman. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, true. A very interesting moment in the documentary. Um, she was also very funny. I think she's the one who says that he would always talk about his sexual prowess Mm-hmm. He called his he called his penis his purple onion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's always fun. And so let's meet Francis real quick because she would be the mother to his child. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman named Francis Smith who first became aware of Hank when a friend in LA sent her a Bukowski poem about a cat killing a mockingbird soon became an important presence in his life. She recalls that this first Bukowski poem she read ends, and I would have screamed, but they have places for people who scream. She read it over and over again, deciding that someday she would like to meet this man. She went to the local bookstore to see about buying his books. They had difficulty tracing down the publishers, all of whom were small presses. Finally, they located them, and Francis took home Bukowski's first three collections of poetry. Rather than pause between volumes, she kept on reading. The force of the poems compelled her to write him a letter. She was a bit of a, a bit of a groupie. Mm-hmm. She mailed it care of Hearst Press. Not long after, uh, a letter came back saying, "Buy my books. My publishers are starving." <laughs> <laughs> that rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Francis kept the letter with his address written on it, but didn't write back until she had moved to California about a year later. She'd attended uh, college in Massachusetts, where she'd studied literature and poetry. 
Uh, okay, great. She arrived in 62. She lived with her mother in a suburb. Eventually, she wrote him a letter from her mother's house explaining how she felt about his work and included her phone number, not mm. expecting to hear from him. She felt she understood him through his poetry and saw him as a person of great inner strength. I can see that from these poems that you go, yeah. wow, I'd kind of like to beat this guy. This is some heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, one night she received a phone call. She knew right away that it was Hank. You have to get over here, he said. I need you immediately. <laughs> He's, yeah. People, this is the, they just, they're sliding into each other's DMs for, yeah. the, for, the, for the kids out there. That's all. Pretty this much. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Getting that phone number. Mm -hmm. uh, he repeated the same thing over and over again. His ed voice edged with desperation. I didn't understand what the emergency was. And of course, the emergency was that he was all alone and had nobody to talk to. He wanted to make human contact. Mm -hmm. Francis figured out that she was just a convenient phone number, something near at hand, but she had determined to meet him. The closest bus was in Anaheim and she didn't know the transit schedule. She took his number, walked several miles to Anaheim, caught a bus to LA and arrived downtown. She wow. called from the station asking him to come get her. He told her to take a taxi. <laughs> Francis saw, get, a pizza, get a pizza on the way. Yeah, a right, of, yeah. A pick, up, pick up a handle. Yeah. yeah. Francis or, saw that. Mm. Or like a six pack than a pizza. Yeah. But yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was more of a beer drinker later on, right? He want he drank nicer wine when he finally could. Oh, yeah. when he could make, yeah, when he had the screw. Yeah. Well, uh, she saw that he was too drunk to drive, so she hailed a cab and hoped that he would have money to pay. She had no money on her, having forgotten to borrow a few dollars from her mother. I remember when I first saw Hank in the doorway. He seemed so huge and gave off so much electricity. He was like a giant in a fairy tale. He just stood there so kindly, this friendly, kind, benevolent giant. He paid the cab driver, and I went in, and we sat and talked for hours. I didn't drink but he was drinking beer. They talked from two in the morning until the sun came up. Hank told Francis about growing up in LA, all the stories, the beatings, the acne. He talked about Jane and he endeared herself to her. And you can, you could see where this is going. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's him meeting, meeting Francis, uh, mm. the transplant. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so flash forward, in 1964, a daughter, Marina Louise Bukowski, was born to Bukowski and Francis. Uh, Marina was uh, Smith's fifth daughter, but Bukowski's only child. When he found out Francis was pregnant, Bukowski asked her to marry him, but she turned him down. Hmm. A, an L.A. poet, she is sometimes referred to by Bukowski as the white-haired hippie, the shack job, and old snaggletooth in his writing. So that's fun. <laughs> Old snaggletooth, huh? Yeah, charming. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think she has her own uh, uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, you know, she was an American poet. I was going to say that line about I wanted to scream, but they have a place for people who scream. I was like, that's a pretty good line. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I sort of blew by this, but yeah, she did have five children. She was divorced in 1960. So okay. she's also kind of maybe I painted her as a bit of a naif, but I mean she yeah. she had her own history and background and baggage, yeah. and she was just two years younger than him. Okay, um, yeah. yeah, she married a guy named Ray Smith on the East Coast, 
and they got divorced and she left her, her four daughters behind uh, back on the East coast wow. Wow. to like, and then ends up meeting Bukowski. But more than that, she was like associated with the entire poetry scene down there, probably yeah. through Bukowski. And she wrote a poem about, about her, uh, which has been used as a eulogy one for old Snaggletooth, which <laughs> there you go. All right, cool. And if you want to see her, you can watch that documentary I mentioned. Um, So we're getting into uh, the Black Sparrow years, which is the press that Brad mentioned at the very top. He's getting his first broadsides published. And in 1967, so let's put ourselves there, right? We started in the 20s. He's 47 years old. That's what I was going to say. He's, yeah, yeah, 47. Yeah. Hasn't really made any money from writing. Not really. He's working at a post office job that he hates. They would do these things called the scheme, where if you were a thrower, you had to throw mail. They talk about this in the documentary. You'd have to like practice so you knew which zip code to throw to which place and da 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 da. And he said he would come home and he couldn't like lift his arms. He was so tired from this. Uh, and of course this is, a, I mean, you, you heard those poems. I mean, it's maybe a bit of a stretch to say a genius, but I'll say, yeah, I'll say a genius of a sort, a brilliant man doing mm-hmm. that job. It's not an easy job for anybody, but this is a guy who probably he's going to struggle five to 10 times more than somebody else to turn his brain off, but he's only doing it so that he can continue writing. He's doing it to live, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's, mm-hmm. nobody's handing him anything. Right. He's still doing it like well into his 40s. Um, but, you know, women are writing him letters because he's got pokes. So, you know, it's mm. it's not all it's not all it's not all L's. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, you know, in the middle there. Fine. OK, great. Um, and the Beatles have happened now. Right. So we've gone from the 20s to the war. 67. Sergeant Pepper's around the corner. What year was Sergeant? <laughs> what year was Sergeant Pepper? Sixty-eight. Was, was it sixty-eight? No, later. Uh, than that. Oh, it was sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Yeah, it came out in sixty-seven. So it's like, yeah, the the year of Sergeant Pepper is happening here, and mm-hmm. uh, he starts writing a column, "Notes of a Dirty Old Man" for <laughs> Open City, <laughs> and. Uh, when open city was shut down in 1969 and the founder of open city, like had a vision for open city while tripping acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and they didn't, they've just, it's that time now in California. Yeah. yeah it was right? the sixties, man. Yeah. I've got a few cities like times and places that I'd like to be teleported back to. Like I'd love to go see Cocteau twins in London in the eighties, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. But also like LA 1966, like California, like please, yeah. you got yeah. you can't tell me that wouldn't be a moment. Sure. You just go. I'd go work a day job there just to <laughs> just to see what it was like for real. Yeah. 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 So we're in a moment now, and he's a part of it, and this is critical. He is a part of it. He was never a hippie. It's like Jason has said. He's not a beat. He's not a hippie. He's a man at a time. He's his own man. And uh, Open City gets shut down in 69, and then the LA Free Press, which was a uh, which picked it up, and then there's the hippie underground paper, NOLA Express in New Orleans, picked this up. And um, 
in 69, Bukowski and Neely Tchaikovsky, who I think is the fellow I've been reading from, launched their own short-lived mimeographed literary magazine, Laugh Literary and Man the Humping Guns. <laughs> they yeah. produced three issues over the next two years. So, okay, short-lived, fine. Um, and now we've got the thing Brad mentioned, and I love this story. There's a fellow named John Martin. In 1969, John Martin offered him, I believe it was like $100 a month to write full-time. And apparently they were doing his uh, budget on a napkin. Right, I need this much for beer. I need this much for rent. I need this much for child support. And when he said a hundred bucks a month, John Martin was like, "You can live off of a hundred dollars a month." Yeah. And so John Martin made an offer and said, "Yeah, I'll fund you to write full time." He was forty nine years old. He wanted him to quit the post office and write full time. Mm-hmm. And Bukowski said of that, "I have one of two choices: choices stay in the post office and go crazy." Or stay out here and play play at writer and starve. I have dis- decided to starve. And if I'm not mistaken, John Martin said, poetry is great. But what do you got to do if you got want to make a lot of money, Brad? You write a novel. That tried is and write, true. Tried tradition. and true. Yeah. Yep. Just like just like our friend, friend of the pod, uh, Roberto Bolaño. Yeah, he, when he needed right. to make money, he wrote a novel. Wrote a novel. Yeah, you you, you go to the gold mine. That's what you that's do, right? You yeah. go when when you're dry, you go back to the well, right? Uh, and <laughs> so he said, "Hey, can you can you write a novel?" And within a month, under a month, Prakowski called and said, "It's ready." What's ready? A novel, and he had finished the draft of his first novel in under a month, and it is called Post Office. Huh. And uh, Jason is going to read us a little bit from Post Office, and it's good. It's actually good. It's amusing. If you've ever had a job that you've hated, which may be redundant and unnecessary, if you've <laughs> ever had a job, uh, yeah. you would probably appreciate Post Office. <laughs> so, Jason, regale us with a uh, some paragraphs from this this debut novel. From the dirty old man. I was called down to personnel at the old federal building. They let me sit the usual 45 minutes or hour and a half. Then, Mr. Chinaski, this voice said, yeah. I said, step in. The man looked me, the man walked me back to a desk. There sat this woman. She looked a bit sexy, melting into 38 or 39 but she looked as if her sexual ambition had either been laid aside for other things or as if it had been ignored. Mm-hmm. Sit down, Mr. Chinansky. I sat down. Baby, I thought I could really give you a ride. Mr. Chinansky, she said, you have, we have been wondering if you have filled out this application properly. Huh? We mean the arrest record. She handed me the sheet. There wasn't any sex in her eyes. I had listed eight or ten common drunk raps. It was only an estimate. I had no idea of the dates. Now, have you listed everything? She asked me. Uh, uh, let me think. I knew what she wanted. She wanted me to say yes, and then she had me. Let me see. Mm, uh, yes, she said. Uh, uh, my God. 
What is it? It's either drunken auto or drunk driving. About four years ago or so. I don't know the exact date. And this was a slip of the mind? Yes, really. I meant to put it down. All right, put it down. I wrote it down. Mr. Chinansky, this is a terrible record. I want you to explain these charges, even if possible, justify your present employment with us. All right. You have 10 days to reply. I didn't want the job that badly, but she irritated me. I phoned in sick that night after buying some ruled and numbered legal paper and a blue, very official looking folder. I got a fifth of whiskey and a six pack and sat down and typed it out. I had the dictionary at my elbow. Every now and then I would flip a page, find a large incomprehensible word and build a sentence or a paragraph out of the idea. It ran 42 pages. <laughs> I finished up with copies of this statement have been retained for distribution to the press television, and other mass communication media. I was full of shit. She got up from her desk and got it personally. Mr. Chinansky? Yes. It was 9 a.m. One day after her request to answer charges. Just a moment. She took the 42 pages to her desk. She read and read and read. There was somebody reading over her shoulder. Then there were two, three, four, five, all reading, six, seven, eight, nine, all reading. <laughs> what the hell, I thought. Then I heard a voice from the crowd. Well, all geniuses are drunkards, as if that explained away the matter. Too many movies again. She got up from the desk with the 42 pages in her hand. Mr. Chinansky, yes, your case will be continued. You will hear from us. Meanwhile, continue working. Meanwhile, continue working. Good morning, I said. <laughs> it, it has the stuff of theater it's yeah. very funny he, he yeah. draws a scene he's inside this guy's mind this guy just wants he just wants to get laid he's just sizing you know it's it's yeah it's misogynistic but it's also confessional right mm -hmm. and it's funny and mm -hmm. engaging and if you've ever had a job that you hated where you have to deal with bureaucracy Right, and you're you want to be a writer. You are a writer, but you're trapped by this this system. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I so like that. It's very very funny. It's worth reading. It's not a bad novel, right? Is it is it Hemingway? No, but he's not even really necessarily trying to be, uh, and he's not casting himself as an heroic figure. Mm -hmm. um, or if he is, it's in the sense that like the act of writing that novel itself is kind of the heroism because you know ultimately the the mind trapped inside of this Kafka-esque American bureaucracy and the sort of capitalism and got to make money to eat has survived. That's right. the heroism of Bukowski. Well, uh, spoiler alert, here are the hmm. last three sentences of the book. In the morning, it was morning and I was still alive. Maybe I'll write a novel, I thought, and then I did. <laughs> okay. Okay. Nice. So yeah. I think that sums up a lot of what you were just saying, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. It's been a while since I've read it. So I'm glad that I remember. Yeah. Kind of the vibe. Very cool. Well, thank you for reading that. Let's move on. So now we've got novels and he would write, he would write six. He would write uh post office factotum women, uh, Hollywood, pulp, and ham on rye. 
not in that order necessarily. I think the last one was Pulp, but uh, they're fun. And the novels, if you're more of a novel person or a story person, the novels are a fun way to to get into it for sure. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Post Office is probably a more fun read than Ham on Rye. Ham on Rye is a little like, oof. Um, all right. So as a measure of respect for Martin's financial support and faith in a relatively unknown writer, Bukowski published almost all of his subsequent major work with Black Sparrow Press, which became a highly successful enterprise. According to John Martin in the uh, documentary I keep mentioning, it came down to like one week where he was down to his last hundred bucks. And mm. he was like, well, I'm going to have to go back to work. Mm. I tried, but apparently that week was the, was the first week that they went into the black oh, wow. with, with mm. Bukowski. So this wow. guy just took a moonshot with this guy. He really believed, and he said, this is the writer, a writer of his generation, the writer mm. of his generation. And I don't know where Bukowski, how, how well Bukowski sells now, but I suspect he probably sells a lot better even now than a lot yeah. of a lot of other writers so oh, yeah. yeah it worked so it became highly su uh, successful an avid supporter of small independent presses bukowski continued to submit poems and short stories to innumerable small publications throughout his career i love that that rocks mm -hmm. he's that i really like that part of his character mm -hmm. As noted by one reviewer, Bukowski continued to be, thanks to his antics and antics is a word, and deliberate clownish performances, the king of the underground and the epitome of the littles, the little magazine, in the ensuing mm -hmm. decades, stressing his loyalty to those small press editors who had first championed his work and consolidated his presence in new ventures, such as the New York Quarterly, Chiron Review, or Slipstream. When everybody who's uh, getting into this new publishing thing to notice this and to remember this because mm -hmm. this is how it's done. You bit, you help build up and sustain a guy like Bukowski when he becomes mm -hmm. Bukowski, he doesn't forget you. And right. if you're that guy. Don't forget the, don't forget those. People. Right. Right. That's how it works. You build an ecosystem mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. everybody brings everybody up together. Really? Mm -hmm. It yeah. can be done. Yeah, we're big believers in that in, on our Art of Darkness. The people who come on as guests of ours are like, they're part of the family. They're part of the network. We're trying to build everybody up. I really think this, I, I you can, you notice when this stuff is happening and when this stuff is gone, Oh yeah, it's like air has been sucked out of the room. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you oh, can yeah. sort of see it happening. People are realizing, wait a minute, we got to start our own stuff. We have to. Right. You have to. Everything else is dead. Dead, mm -hmm. dead, dead. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, now, he's having some success here. He's a professional writer. Bukowski embarked on a series of love affairs and one-night trysts. One of those relationships was with Linda King, a sculptor and poet. In 1970, shortly after the end of her marriage, King met Bukowski and offered to make a sculpture of his head. He, ex he accepted her offer, and they soon became romantically involved. King mm -hmm. was 30 years old. And Bukowski was about 20 years her senior when they started their relationship. That's age gap number two. But the other way, yeah. But the other way around. Other way. I, told you, yeah. I told you it was coming. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is not the Linda who would become his wife. This was the Linda before Linda the wife. Um, I want to read a little bit here. Well, and this is again from the uh, uh, Tchaikovsky. 
While Post Office was being ready for release, Linda King, a cherubic brunette destined to become his long-term girlfriend, went to the bridge one night in 1970 to hear a poetry reading by a writer whose name she forgets. She met Peter, the owner, and the two of them began, them began talking about writers in L.A. Linda asked Peter who he thought wrote the best poetry in town. He told her Charles Bukowski was the best poet in L.A. So she picked up a copy of the first issue of Laugh, Literary, and Man the Humping Guns <laughs> from Peter. Oh, man, the 60s. Yeah. Uh, this included a Bukowski poem called The Grand Pricks of the Hobnail Sun. Linda liked what she read. When she came to the line, God tongues out your asshole, she began to wonder about the poet's sexual preference. Standing in front of the bridge, she asked Peter if Bukowski was a homosexual. Peter said he didn't know. Quite unexpectedly, Hank and then the author, Tchaikovsky, and I showed up right then. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Peter mm -hmm. saw us in the parking lot at the market across from the bridge. We had just gotten out of Hank's car and were playfully wrestling in the lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good time. And make, yeah, yeah. That was, people remember from Art of Darkness Live, Brad, when you and I yeah. were playfully wrestling. wrestling. Of, yeah. Yeah. No, like you do. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, they were making a lot of noise, secretly hoping to attract attention to ourselves. That's Bukowski coming right now, Peter informed Linda. I came up to the door first, and Peter told me that this woman wanted to know if Hank was a homosexual. Not to be outdone by the generally wild Peter I tossed off, well, he doesn't play around with me. Linda watched as Hank swaggered up to the door and walked inside. He and I sat with Peter on a mattress at the center of the room as the reading began. Hank and I both began making snide remarks, first under, under our breaths and then loud enough for everyone in the room to hear. Linda, who had come with her sister Geraldine, sat in a far corner. We were entertaining ourselves with beer wine and conversation uh this is so funny a few weeks went by before linda returned to the bridge to find a bad poet reading to flute accompaniment uh, uh. <laughs> oh god it's, i'm just gonna move on here Jay, I feel like Jason has experienced this at one point. Yeah. I have to do what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they keep seeing each other. Linda at one point is dancing, uh, I think, at this on his coffee table. And he's thinking about the sexual drought that had afflicted him for the previous four years. Nope. Since Francis, he had not had any relationships that amounted to anything. So he hoped something would develop with Linda a short while later, Linda sent him a poem in which she called him an old troll and exhorted him to come out and dance in the open meadows with what she termed female fawn creatures to do. So would give Bukowski great. It's the sixties people mm -hmm. to do. So would give Bukowski great wisdom. She thought uh, the, the next morning after he received the poem, Linda drove over uh, to his place, parked down the, the street, walked up to his apartment and knocked on the window. Open it up. Open up. It's me, Linda, she called. She caught him in the midst of a hangover and offered to come back later. He told her to stay. They talked for a while. And eventually she told him that she was a sculptor and wanted to make a bust of him. And so she's looking at him as a challenge and you know, you could, again, you could sort of see where this is heading. Yeah. I like giving pictures of these, these various women. Um, yeah. Critic. Yeah. Critic Robert Peters reported seeing Bukowski. You're not going to expect this, Brad. 
Mm. as an actor in her play, she wrote a play called Only a Tenant, in which she and Bukowski stage read the first act at the Pasadena Museum of the Artist. This Hmm. was a one-off performance of what was a shambolic work. Ah, well. (laughs) I like the idea of him being so enamored of a woman that he's like, yeah, I'll read your play. Yeah, I'll read it. Uh, Can we get the guy with the flute? Yeah. (laughs) Make it a musical. Yeah. Um, So their relationship was on and off. And whenever they fell out, Bukowski would return the head to Linda. (laughs) (laughs) You take my head back. Um, We're laughing now, but it was like the affair could become violent. And at one point Mm. he broke her nose. Mm. Is this the woman that he was? I know in the documentary interview I've seen with someone, he's on the couch with a Kick, woman. He starts kicking, kicking her. her. That's yeah. his. That's the other Linda. Okay. Okay. Who he would marry and who would forgive him. But yeah, okay. you could get a sense from that documentary that like, yeah, this guy would like get drunk and yeah, lash out, hit and right. kick. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, don't co-sign that kind of behavior oh, for sure. Really yeah. Yep. So uh, on another occasion, Linda King and Bukowski were accompanied, excuse me, accommodated at the City Lights apartment in San Francisco after a reading at their Poets Theater. By the following morning, there was a broken window and a panel smashed in the door and King had disappeared. He blamed her for the damage. Hmm. And I got a little more about their, uh, again, you can see where this is going. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. So he moves out of uh, Linda's house. After moving out of her house, he rented an apartment uh, in a court with eight bungalows on Carlton Way off Western Avenue. His neighbors included a stripper, a manager of a massage parlor, and other assorted L.A. lowlife types. <laughs> yeah. The surroundings and the people yeah. were com- were comforting to him. Uh, the place was $105 per month, complete with paint flaking off the walls, an ancient kit- kitchen, and torn curtains. Uh, so you about get a sense. Mm-hmm. Early in 1975, Linda took a job at Flo's Cocktail Lounge on Sunset Boulevard, working as a hostess. And someone, this fellow named Brad, Brad showed Linda photos of Hank with a woman sitting nude on his knee. Brad wanted Linda to comment on the photos. She said they were beautiful before ripping them up. Brad scrambled on the floor to pick up the pieces. I knew the relationship was on its last legs, Linda said. Hank had some woman flying from New York City or some other place to stay on a weekend. I I went to Hank's door and looked in the window and I could see Hank walking around nude while this woman lay on the bed. One night, Linda was at home feeling isolated, looking out the window at a half-dead pine tree ravaged by smog. I knew Bukowski was with another woman. I could feel it from across town. Oh, my God. <laughs> Linda recalls. They really can. Uh, I knew I had to get out of the city if I was ever going to break up with him in some final way. I couldn't be just one of his many whim- women. Uh, yeah. So... Let's see here. Oh, there's some more. As soon as Linda gathered back her strength, she decided to take further retribution on Bukowski. Quite by chance, Hank returned and caught Linda in the bushes with his books. He said, give me back my things. You ever had a crazy breakup like this, guys? 
Mm, yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Give me back my things. This isn't right. Linda, who had been drinking for hours before coming over to Hank, snapped back. But it is right. She took his books to the back of the court and threw them through the, his glass door. Every time th- she threw one, she said, and don't tell me about your women anymore. And I don't want to hear any more about what you are doing. Linda had taken his typewriter from the apartment earlier. She went to where she had left it, picked it up, and ran with it to the street, whereupon she threw it onto the pavement. Not knowing what else to do, Hank called the police, who subsequently filed a report on the incident. And then she moved with her two children uh, to Phoenix. And then he went to visit her, too, but it was over, obviously. Uh, And... He had his sights set somewhere else. He wrote to her some months later when he got involved with a woman named, you're going to love this, Cupcakes O'Brien. No, yeah. She's, yeah, she's in that documentary too. Uh, <laughs> Hank asked Linda to return to LA and rescue him, pleading that they could have more wild, crazy, fun times together. Linda bowed out. She had had enough and knew that the same cycle would repeat again. Um, I've got something from the other, uh, the other book about some of these affairs, which are fun. This is what Linda had to say. Linda King had to say about this. It wasn't that he had other women. Again, this is that this is L.A. in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what she said. It's that he always wanted me to know about them. Mm-hmm. Always wanted to tell me all the details about what they did together. Who mm-hmm. does that unless they really want to make you mad? Yeah, he wants to, st- he wants to stoke up the drama or he wants them to think here I, I don't know what jason thinks but i'll go out on a limb and say he's he was so fucked up from that experience in high school yeah that it's like now he's getting women right. like uh, yeah yeah that, i agree with that yeah. yeah and he's just like devil may care i'll leave you before you leave me you i don't need right. you right. you can go find you you know i'm you know so it's both that it's just wild wild insecurity and then boastfulness right you know yeah and, and then then like throughout throughout love is a dog from hell and other later collections that are written around this time he'll then write these very remorseful poems about how devastating he is about the most recent breakup so it's very you know it's a very push-pull thing but i think kevin that he he just likes to be boastful and and you know he's what they call a late bloomer sexually and right right gotta overcompensate for that Mm mm-hmm that I 100% think that's what it is. Um, and they really got into it. And at one point, he ended up in the drunk tank. And John Martin had to kind of come and rescue him. Listen to this. Uh, this is when he was still with Linda. Martin called the police back to let Bukowski know Linda was on her way. Oh, yes, Mr. Martin. Just a moment, please, said the desk sergeant unctuously. Charles, he called. Oh, Charles, it's for you. Martin heard somebody asking Bukowski if he cared for a cup of coffee, and Bukowski replying, yeah, put it down there, thank you. It seemed to be a very civil evening in the drunk tank. When he came on the line, Bukowski thanked Martin for fixing things and said the superintendent wanted a word. Mr. Martin said the superintendent, we are taking good care of your friend here. We are all big admirers of, of his work. It turned out 
The cops were all avid readers of Bukowski's Notes of a Dirty Old Man column, which had a much wider readership now it was appearing in the L.A. Free Press. They hadn't even bothered to lock him up. Huh. So that's the level of fame we're getting to here. All right. That's some swagger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yep. cops can't even touch me, you bitch. Something like, something like that. I'm sure he yeah, said something yeah. like that at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so here now, and so we're getting up to his writing of women. And if he's going to write a novel called Women, he's going to need to do some research, right? So yeah. Bukowski was starting to get quite a lot of fan mail, some of it from women who were attracted to the honest way he wrote about sex and relationships. Now Linda King had taught him a thing or two. He had the capacity to love and love deeply, and a lot of men don't even have that capacity, she said. He wasn't afraid of that. He let his emotions loose. Bukowski let himself feel all kinds of things. One of these women was Joanna Bull, a voluptuous blonde former girlfriend of rock star drummer LeVon Helm. She sent samples of her poetry and began visiting him at the bungalow, which he kept as a bolt hole for when he wanted to get away from Linda. I need a bolt hole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Joanna was more interested in Bukowski's mind than his body, but she knew he wanted to sleep with her. And one night when he'd stayed later than normal and smoked a lot of dope, she resigned herself to it. But her subconscious was apparently set against the idea. When we got to the moment of truth and we were all wrestling around and doing stuff and preparing ourselves, he realized I hadn't taken off my panties. He was absolutely disgusted. Afterwards, she went into the toilet and threw up. It was unbearable to me, she says. Ouch. Uh, In July of 1973, he accompanied Linda on her annual trip to Utah. He was looking ahead to writing his novel Women and needed to collect material, as he explained to John Martin. I'm making a study on Linda. If I ever get it down right, someday you'll see the female exposed as she has never been exposed. On their first night in Boulder, the King sisters threw an uproarious party. Every wild character we knew we had there, and I think he was a little taken aback. He, this is Jerry King, her her sister. He was used to being the wildest person at a party, and he had competition at that one. Uh, a couple of days later, Bukowski, Linda, and Jerry, together with their children, dove to where the family had a trailer on the side of Boulder Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this is just talking about a, a camping trip. I w- In any case, yeah. So, the, I, so he's having other affairs, and... Uh, I think I think I've got it. Um, he had one with a recording executive, a 23-year-old redhead. He wrote a book of poetry as a tribute for his love to the latter, titled Scarlet. Hmm. Uh, and these affairs provided material for his stories and poems. Another important relationship was with Tanya. It was a pseudonym of Amber O'Neill, which is apparently also a pseudonym, uh, <laughs> described in Bukowski's Women uh, as a pen pal that evolved into a weekend tryst at his residence in L.A. in the 70s. Amber O'Neill, air quotes, later self-published a chat book about the unfair affair entitled Blowing My Hero. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. It's the 70s. I've said <laughs> it before, but that's kind of where we're at. Uh but this is a cute part in that documentary too, where he's again, yeah, he's like he's like sexually st- like stunted. He never mm-hmm. he never got to to like let rip. Um, mm-hmm. So he's finally getting to let rip, but it's not all pretty, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think he's he suffers from that kind of unfortunate thing that can sometimes happen, where 
he's such a good writer. He's a very, very good writer. I have the hunch that he's probably cultivated a personality where he's going to get yeah. into drama. He's going to create stories and drama and problems because guess what comes out of it? Fair to say you're agreeing with me, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's, that's, that's fairly, yeah, that's, I mean, I need something, yeah. And it, it's largely subconscious. A lot right. of that. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. It's not like he's not, he's not, as the kids say, he's not doing drama for drama's sake, but he's, yeah. he's building a world in which he can, I mean, and so much of what he's writing is auto fiction and auto poetry anyway, as you know, as thinly veiled as it is, he is his subject, which, you know. Yeah. And so that sort of forces your hand, doesn't it? You're exactly. not going to sit home and collect stamps you got to have something to write about. And you go from two novels on jobs, because I think it's Post Office Factotum Women, then Ham on Rye. So the first first two novels are about working life, drinking, novel about women. Okay, well, I got to research that, right? I got to, yeah. ooh, you know, da-da-da, because now I got women. Uh, then it's Ham on Rye. Okay, I'm going to go back and look at my childhood. Then Hollywood, I think... Yeah, might be that order, and that's that's his experience having a movie made, and then finally pulp. Uh, yeah. And anyway, that's right, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a little bit about him meeting Ginsburg, and we're we're making good time here. We're doing well, boys. Yeah, I hope right, everybody's right. enjoying this. This, yeah, is no, fun. this is fun. I'm, this is a fun one. I I've been looking forward to doing this one for a long time. All right, and this is from a chapter in uh, Locked in the Arms of a Crazy Life called Getting Famous. Does this face bother you? Bukowski asked the young woman. They were at a party in Santa Cruz after a benefit reading where he had appeared with beat poets Alan Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferenghetti, and Gary Snyder. I mean, you find it revolting, he asked, touching his bulbous nose and oatmeal complexion. No, she answered. I think you should judge a man by the inside of him. Well, good, he said. Let's go and fuck then. Jeez. Although nervous to the point of sickness earlier in the evening, drinking from the flask of vodka and orange to steady himself on stage, one shot for each poem he read, recalls Ginsburg. Bukowski manipulated the crowd of 1600 with consummate skill, asking them disarmingly, isn't this boring? Before giving a captivating reading. <laughs> That's a good move. It is. Ginsburg came on afterwards and was chanting a blues litany when he was told there had been a bomb threat. So I turned to rhymed improvisation and explained the situation in friendly song. The audience began to understand and began filing out of the theater calmly. All the poets followed after the audience left. And Bukowski looked at me and said, surprisingly, Ginsburg, you're a good man. I was a little apprehensive. He'd disapprove of me as academic or a four-eyed queer, but he was agreeable and friendly. When Ginsburg arrived at the party that evening, Bukowski announced with mock seriousness, ladies and gentlemen, we've got Alan Ginsburg as guest of honor tonight. Can you believe it? Alan Ginsburg. He called for the music to be turned down and when it wasn't said to Ginsburg, whom he'd put in an affectionate headlock, a man of genius, the first poet to cut through light and consciousness for 2000 years. And these bastards don't even appreciate it. <laughs> nice. Ginsburg rubbed Bukowski's back to try and calm him. (laughs) (laughs) That feels good, Alan. Real good, said Bukowski. Have a drink. Ginsburg said he'd already had enough. Everybody knows that after Howell, you never wrote anything worth a shit, said Bukowski. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Angry his offer of a drink had been rejected. He turned to the people around them and asked, Has Alan written anything worth the shit since Howl and Kadish? Kadish. Ginsburg corrected him. Alan, you're tearing me apart. You're a barracuda, Alan, eating me up with your tongue. He laughed contemptuously and reeled <laughs> off into a drunken bear-like dance with, as Ginsburg recalls, his big pants falling down halfway from behind. <laughs> he was getting right. famous that now, although not as famous as he would become, accepted as an equal by established writers like Ferenghetti and Ginsburg. All right. All right. What a wild ride from yeah. getting beaten in a crummy rambler in LA and having blood all over your shoulders from pustules of acne to put in Lord, uh, to put in uh, Allen Ginsberg in a headlock after 1600 people or whatever. Yeah. 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 Wild. Yep. All right. All right. We're going to, we're going to move on. We're going to keep on and bring this home. Uh, so much fun. And the after dark is going to be great too. We got a, we got a great cat poem. Uh, and, uh, We'll see what else uh, Jason has for us. All right. And his work was controversial, right? Like, it's going to be sexism. There's a fellow named Fox, Hugh Fox, who in 1969 published the first critical study of Bukowski in the North American Sorry, what year? 1986? 69. He got a critical study of Bukowski in the North American Review and mentioned his attitude Hmm. toward women. When women are around, he has to play man. In a way, it's the same kind of pose he plays that it is poetry. Bogart, Eric von uh, Stroheim. Whenever my wife Lucia would come with me to visit him, he'd play the man role. But one night he couldn't come. I got to Buke's place and found a whole different guy. Easy to get along with, relaxed, accessible. Hmm. Right? Okay. So he's performing for women. Again, probably overcompensating. We don't psychoanalyze, but you can about imagine yeah. somebody who suffered that much and was always on the outside. Now he's the big dog. Now he's the major poet. Yeah. Like, and he knows it. And and he's a pop figure. He's got h- tens of thousands, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dedicated readers in LA for this column. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a yeah. star. Yeah. yeah. His live readings were legendary with the drunken, raucous crowd fighting with the drunk, angry poet. We don't have anything like this right now, (laughs) as far as I don't think. I can't even imagine 500 people coming out for a poetry reading. And it's a party. And it's a party. Yeah. It's not stuffy and nobody's worried about their career. You'd be more more likely to get the police called uh, than than, uh, get a recommendation letter (laughs) for for, uh, tenure. Right. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we need to get back some of this energy. It is vital. Um, in 1972, Joe Wolberg, who is manager of City Lights Books in San Francisco, the big beat hippie bookstore, rented a hall and paid Bukowski to read his poems. That was released on vinyl uh, by City Lights and then reissued in 1980. So you can go and listen to this stuff if you want. His readings of his own poetry are really fun. Uh, mm. they're, they're worth it. He often wrote of L.A. as his favorite subject. Uh, In 1974, he said, you live in a town all your life and you get to know every bitch on the street corner and half of them you've already messed around with. You've got the layout of the whole land. You have a picture of where you are. Since I was raised in L.A., I've always had the geographical and spiritual feeling of being here. I've had time to learn this city. I can't see any other place than L.A. 
I've been to LA a few times. I was in LA uh, the last time we were doing a yeah. podcast. I was having a bit of a Bukowski time myself. <laughs> and I, I, I'll never pretend to understand LA. Yeah. Never. I, I'm not even going to half try. It's vast is one thing about it. it. It's, yeah. It just the, the light alone. Like I grew up in North Dakota, man. Right. Uh, you know, I, I barely grok Minnesota. Barely. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time here too. I go out to LA and I know I'll always be a foreigner out there. Mm. Always. Mm. But you LA LA was was Bukowski's town. So yeah. Yeah. Uh we got a little more to go here. One critic has described his fiction as so we heard about his poetry, the fiction as a detailed depiction of a certain taboo male fantasy, the uninhibited bachelor, slobby, antisocial, and utterly free. An image he tried to live up to with sometimes riotous public poetry readings and boorish party behavior. God, I would have, I'd love to put Allen Ginsberg in a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> the more I think about that. Yeah, dude. That would have that would have been a, a, a few critics and commentators also supported the idea that Bukowski was a cynic as a man and a writer. He denied being a cynic, stating, I've always been accused of being one. I think cynicism is sour grapes. I think cynicism is a weakness. We're coming up to Linda number two, his I think longest partner, or one is certainly the one who would carry him through to the end. In 1976, he met Linda Lee Bagley, a health food restaurant owner, rock and roll groupie, aspiring actress, heiress to a small Philadelphia mainline fortune, and a devotee of Mayor Baba. Nice. Woo! She's got it all. She's got it all. She's gonna, you know. Yeah. What did uh what's that Kanye line? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of them, yeah. a lot of them. <laughs> what did he say took took pills kissed an heiress and woke up back in paris <laughs> something like that something like that another great american poet yeah <clears throat> yeah so we'll just get a little flavor of linda here Little did Hank know that one of the most important persons in his life would come to a reading he gave on September 29th of 1976 at the Troubadour, a popular L.A. night spot on Santa Monica Boulevard, a few miles west of his apartment. This was one of his last public readings and typically had sold out. The Troubadour's main dance floor was crowded to capacity on the night that Linda, the future Mrs. Bukowski, heard him read. Although she had wanted to meet him for some time, she had waited for more than a year, attending his readings, staying in the background. Linda, who was about 25 years younger than Hank, woo, woo, <laughs> watched women screaming with passionate intensity at their hero and closely observed his lively responses. The crowd performed nearly as much as the man whom they had come to hear. His motto was to never let the audience rule. Give them room, let them bellow and howl, but keep ultimate control in your own hands. After a decade and a half of practice, he knew the game and played it well. Perceptive fans, though, could sense his vulnerability. Such was the case with Linda. It would not be an exaggeration to say that she saw through the carnival atmosphere uh, and saw him. She admired him and loved his writing. She sensed that his poems were not mere literary invention, but rather represented his innermost self uh she had she claimed that her feeling for him was like almost mystical mm -hmm. right hmm. 
After the reading, as he was leaving the troubadour with another woman, she approached him. Just as he walked out of the front door, she handed him a note with her name, address, and telephone number. He responded on the spot by giving her his phone number, and he included a one-line poem, which she can no longer recall, along with a drawing of a little man with outstretched arms. He would he would do these little drawings. Mm. And again, we can sort of see where this is going, right? Two days later, Hank rang her up at the Dewdrop Inn. That's clever, Dewdrop Inn. A health food restaurant she owned on in Redondo Beach, a seaside suburb of L.A., close enough to the madness of the city to receive its smog, but also blessed with sea breezes and cool Pacific air. He suggested that they get together. Listen, why don't I drive down to your place, he said. She told him her place was a restaurant and gave him directions. He went back to work ecstatic at having called. She went about her business, making sandwiches, conversing with her customers and thinking of him. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Mm-hmm. He he drives out to see her and yeah, now he's met Linda and Linda is would, would be the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years later, he moved from the East Hollywood area where he had lived for most of his life to the harborside community of San Pedro, the southernmost district of L.A., mm-hmm. San Pedro, like it's got a got a beach, it's oceanfront, it's sort of south. I think it's south of uh LAX. Mm. Linda followed him and they lived together intermittently over the next two years. Mm. Now, this is cool. The Germans really embraced him because he was uh, he was born there. He's one of them yeah. in, a, in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, and there, I think that their working culture. I think there's a certain quality Bukowski has that maybe the Germans can kind of relate to mm-hmm. speculating. Um, but in May of 1978, he went to West Germany and gave a live poetry reading of his work uh, before an audience in Hamburg. And that was released as a double LP stereo record titled Charles Bukowski. Hello. It's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's yeah. a nice little it sounds like the title of a stand-up album yeah right? wunderbar, like, yeah. wunderbar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um fun his last international performance was in october of 79 in vancouver british columbia canada and was released on dvd as there's gonna be a goddamn riot in here that rocks that's you're good. you're a, like a world famous poet and you're calling it's punk rock it's yeah, punk a yeah. little right on the edge of when punk rock's going to start to happen. Yeah. Uh, the reading was produced by fan and friend Dennis Del Torre, who rented a venue, Viking Hall, paid Bukowski and his wife Linda to fly up, hired a video crew, promoted the event, and sold tickets. That rocks. More of that. Mm-hmm. The crowd and uh, Bukowski were very drunk for the event. Sadly, a heckler was near the stage. It can be heard clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh in any case, let's see. He gave his last reading in 1980 at the Sweetwater Music Vendo in Redondo Beach, California. That's out on uh, vinyl and audio CD. Hmm. And uh, he and Linda were eventually married by Manly Palmer Hall, a Canadian-born author, mystic, and spiritual teacher. Wait, what? Yeah. who? I, who do you know who that is? Yeah. Yeah, Manly Manly P. Hall wrote, like, if you don't know anything about esotericism or the occult, but you're curious, read The Secret Teaching of All Ages by Manly Manly Hall. It's the 101 intro book. To what? Weird. That's bizarre that he married. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. 
Well, so uh, as this was happening, the Barfly film project was sort of gestating and like Sean Penn's on the scene and Dennis Hopper is reading the screenplay. So it's like we're at that level now. Okay. Um, During the long, painful birth of the Barfly project, Hank and Linda Begley were married. For several months beforehand, Hank had considered the possibility of marriage, thinking that she had to be a very courageous woman to stick around with him through his drunkenness, his obsession with the racetrack, and his preoccupation with writing. He popped the question in the late spring of 1985. So now we're into like, I I was alive. Yeah. Not to date myself, but while they were sitting on the porch overlooking their garden, out of nowhere, Hank said, let's get married. What? Linda exclaimed. Yeah, let's do it. When, when, she asked, let's make it the first Sunday after my birthday, Hank answered. The ceremony took place on August 18th, 1995 at the Philosophical Society Library in L.A., persuaded over by Manly Palmer Hall. There are about a dozen people attending, including John Martin, who served as best man. Marina Bukowski, his daughter, and her boyfriend, Jeff Stone, Linda's mother, and her sister, Jara. After the marriage, a reception was held at Siam West. Linda had arranged for a reggae band to play, and they invited around 80 people, including poets John Thomas, Steve Richmond, and Gerald Lachlan. At one point during the party, Hank grabbed a wide-brim hat covered with gardenias off Linda's head and began dancing as he threw the hat aside. When it came time for Hank to toast his bride, he raised his glass and said, To my wife, who is searching for something she will never find, the truth. The morning afterward, Hank woke up and laughingly said, Good morning, Mrs. Bukowski. Bukowski, good morning, dear husband, she replied. And now we've got bar flies happening. Um, And coming into the end here, 1986, Time Magazine called Bukowski laureate of American lowlife. Regarding his enduring popular appeal, Adam Kirsch of The New Yorker wrote, The secret of Bukowski's appeal is that he combines the confessional poet's promise of intimacy with the larger-than-life aplomb of a pulp fiction hero. Barfly comes out in 1987. This is like an A-list movie. I mean, it's got Mickey Rourke. It's a black comedy. Faye Dunaway. It's about Charles Bukowski. Kind of insane to think that that ever happened now probably right. didn't hurt it was a three million dollar budget it did 3.2 in the box office so it didn't bomb but it wasn't like a major hit it was nominated for a few things not an oscar you know mm-hmm. it was a nominee for the palm door uh, you know but it's just like it's an amazing thing to think. And it probably didn't hurt that he was a denizen of LA for him to get a movie made. Right. Um, he's our guy. He's our guy. Like, do you think of like the big Lebowski movie? The the dude is a real guy that the Coen brothers made. Right. right? It's almost, except Bukowski's got this, you know, th- this literary career as well. But mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, Bukowski had mixed reactions about the performance of Mickey Rourke. In an interview in the documentary I've mentioned, he said, didn't Mickey Rourke didn't get it right. He had it all kind of exaggerated. The mannerisms untrue. It's a little bit show off about it. So, no, it was kind of misdone. 
Yet the original 1987 press kit for the film included a letter by Bukowski apropos the film titled A Letter from a Fan in which the writer stated, part of my luck was the actor who played Henry Chinaski. Mickey Rourke stayed with the dialogue to the word and the sound intended. What surprised me was that he added another dimension to the character in spirit. Mickey appeared to really love his role and yet without exaggeration, he added his own flavor, his zest, his madness, his gamble to Henry Chinaski without destroying the intent or the meaning of the character character to add spirit to spirit can be dangerous but not in the hands of a damn good actor without distorting he added he added and i was very pleased with the love and understanding he lent to the role of the barfly yeah that sounds like genuine doesn't sound genuine at all yeah they're trying to sell they're trying to put butts in seats of course they are yeah yeah Yeah. bukowski had confided to the film critic roger ebert in an interview conducted on the set of the film that he thought Rourke was doing a good acting job i didn't really expect him to be so good (laughs) so who knows and then he novelized that in the book hollywood uh which Hmm. i must have read many years ago uh but it's been a long time since i read it and we're coming up to the end boys Mm. it's it's this is the end i mean you know he's i just think about him in like 1920 yeah 1930 a 10 year old boy mowing the grass to hanging out with sean penn yeah and getting phone calls from bono wait did bono call him yeah, Bono called him because he, he was hanging out. Because he was hanging out, right? Yeah, yeah. But he was hanging out with Sean Penn. Ah, well, yeah. And okay. like you know, Sean okay. Penn's friend with Bono. You got to remember yeah. too. This is this is the eighties. The U two was like the biggest band in the right. world there of for a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, whatever else you think about it, now it's like, damn, what a trip for this guy. That's huge. From yeah. yeah, massive. And he did it, and he survived. So, yeah. I'll bring us. I'll bring us in here. <sighs> Hank's last novel, Pulp, was published in 1994, the year of his death. It's dedicated to bad writing. That's what it says at the top. Dedicated to bad writing. A jab at the carefully constructed American novels that he used to read and find abhorrent. The clean fingernail boys is what he called the writers of formula fiction. Even though Hank's health was failing, the story came easily. He had fun writing it. If you have to fight with your words, something's wrong, he used to say. Trust your instinct. Don't pull back. Even if you fail, you can get up and try again. Against death, he added a character named Lady Death and sparred with her throughout the novel. Hank died on Wednesday, March 9th, 1994 at San Pedro Peninsula Hospital from leukemia, Linda and Marina at his bedside. The LA Times ran a front-page story on the city's most celebrated writer, dubbing, dubbing him Poet of LA's Lowlife, a predictable touch of journalese. The obituary in the New York Times described him as a descendant of the romantic visionaries who worshipped at the altar of personal excess. But the most fully rounded picture of Bukowski came from the poet and teacher, teacher Gerald Lachlan, who wrote a piece for the LA Reader, Charles Bukowski, A Remembrance. Lachlan tells of Hank's beginnings as a little magazine figure and his importance as a spokesman for all those on the bottom. During his illness, he continued writing prolifically. People who talked to him at home or while he was in the hospital sensed a vulnerability, yet a stoical acceptance of his condition. At the end of a conversation with Sam Cherry, who had known him since the early 60s, he said, 
The time is coming when I'll have to put the gloves down. I can feel Papa death. He's standing on the next corner. On March 14th, his funeral was held at Green Hills Memorial Park in Palos Verdes, not far from his home. Among the friends in attendance were John Martin, Sean Penn, Carl Weisner, Steve Richmond, John Thomas, and Red Stoltsky. Stoldowski. Linda Bukowski chose the words, don't try to place on his headstone with an etching in the stone of a pair of boxing gloves. Hmm. And I've got a little more here. And uh, Jason, you can maybe read this business if you want this paragraph I'll highlight. The funeral rites orchestrated by his widow were conducted by Buddhist monks. He's hmm. interred at Green Hills Memorial Park in Rancho Palos Verdes. An account of the proceedings can be found in Gerald Lachlan's book, Charles Bukowski of Sherbet. This phrase, don't try, he uses in one of his poems, advising aspiring writers and poets about inspiration and creativity. He explained the phrase in a letter to someone in 1963. Jason, you want to read this explanation? Somebody asked me, what do you do? How do you write, create? You don't, I told them. You don't try. That's very important. Not to try, either for Cadillacs, creation, or immortality. You wait. And if nothing happens, you wait some more. It's like a bug high on the wall. You wait for it to come to you. When it gets close enough, you reach out, slap out, and kill it. Or if you like its looks, you make a pet out of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, and that's it. He's His archive was uh, donated to the Huntington Library in San Marino in 2006. Copies of all editions of his work published by Black Sparrow are held at Western Michigan University, which purchased the archive of the publishing house after its closure in 2003. Mm -hmm. Uh, Echo Press continues to release new collections of his poetry culled from the thousands of works published in small literary magazines. According to Echo Press, the 2007 release, The People Look Like Flowers at Last, will be his final posthumous release, as now all his once unpublished work has been made available. We'll talk about the editorial controversy on the After Dark for Patreon. If you haven't had enough of us, you want another 30 minutes, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We're going to have some good stuff. I'm going to let Jason finish with the poem. This is maybe a little on the nose. This is maybe his most famous poem. I love this poem. It's play a double hits, banger. Man. It's beautiful. Jason, read us out with Bluebird. Bluebird. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke. And the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? You want to screw up the works? You want to blow my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes when everybody's asleep. I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back but he's singing a little in there. 
I haven't quite let him die. And we sleep together like that with our secret pact. And it's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep. Do you? Mm, but that's, I don't weep. Do you? I, that's a killer poem. Yeah. 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 Oof. And that's the life of Charles Bukowski. Dang. Nice work. Nice work, Kevin. Nice work, Jason. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot about somebody I thought I kind of knew, which that's the thesis of the show in a lot of ways. But yeah, I really want to go back to some of this early stuff. I'm going to have to get my hands on some of the early Bukowski. Some hipster like that. I'm into the early. I'm into the early. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they cool. are. They are shocking poems, aren't they? There's mm-hmm. more going on than you would expect. Yeah. 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 Quite a talent. And yet he refined his his voice, and he yeah, and he was uh, pr- prolific. Yeah, yeah, thousands, thousands and thousands of poems. Apparently, that's amazing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very, very good. Well, we got to bring this in, and then we'll come back for the after dark. I'm going to remind you the topics we're going to cover. If you like what we do, please support us. Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. You can also uh, support us by five star uh, starring us on Spotify, iTunes. Tell your friends. You got a friend who likes Bukowski. Share this with them. You got yeah. a friend who doesn't like Bukowski? Share this with <laughs> them. Yeah, share this with them. Yeah, that's yeah, right. just share. Why not? Yeah. It's free, right? Yeah. And but really seriously, we <laughs> legitimately appreciate all the material support we get. I know Brad loves hearing from people on Twitter. It's nice to see yeah. the Twitter account grow. Yeah. Brad, for the bingo card, can't right. forget. What would Charles Bukowski be doing today? Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to keep writing. I mean there'd probably be continued attempts to make films of the stuff. I mean, they made factotum sometime in the nineties, I think. I think it was um, in the aughts. I think it was like, oh, really? it was in the aughts yeah. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So you might get, a, you know, it, more work would come out. You might get another one of those. What I think would be interesting to, cause what I'm kind of getting from this is, He's a, he is a bit of a character. And then as the fame comes, he sort of has to become more of that character, right? It's it's an amplification of the guy he already was. And then the books are kind of generating. Like, he's one of these guys who the art is actually being Charles Bukowski and the stuff yeah. comes out of it to some extent, right? I don't know how that looks as time goes on. Like, can you maintain that? Does it explode at some point? Does it burn out? Does it... So that's very curious to me. And I think he would, I think you would end up seeing different, you'd probably end up seeing different phases of that, of that lifestyle. Yeah. And this question is always a little ambiguous too, because it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, well, what if Bukowski came back and he was 30 years old right now? Right. What would, what would he be getting into? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if we had the fully realized Bukowski at the end of his life, had another 20 years and he was dropped right here. Yeah, it's hard to know what he'd be doing, but he definitely he got into the the comfy lifestyle. He mm-hmm. got money. He got right. fame. He didn't have to work a regular job. Right. You know, right. and it sounded like he had settled down a little bit by the end and that he yeah. and Linda had kind of figured it out. That's yeah, the impression yeah. you get anyway. But Which that could have nice. just been him just getting older, too. Well, yeah, like, you, you slow down as you get older, for sure. I I think of some for some reason, I think of, you know, the David Lynch's weather reports he was doing for a while. Yeah, or yeah, maybe yeah. He still is not saying that Bukowski would do a weather report, but I could imagine him having like a daily couple minute video 
you know, where he just comes on and like talks shit for a little while and says something kind of profound and a little, a little strange and, and, you know, mm, yeah. Wishes he, you luck in your bullshit job. And right. Like, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, so you think he would embrace new media. I think that's an interesting point, Brad. Is yeah. he, a, is he a TikTok Instagram guy? Is that, I think he, I think he might have gone, not that he wouldn't have written at all, like it wouldn't have right. been trading it in, but I think right. he would have. I mean, he liked these reading, doing these readings, right? Yeah. And he was able to, he was clearly able to like be incredibly productive, right? Like, you know, 2000, 2000 poems. I mean, I know he lived a fairly long life, but, you know, that's a lot of poetry. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wasn't uh, really writing poems until he was 34, 35 years old. Right. So. Plus six novels on top of that, plus a column on top of that. I, you know, I'm sure he would have the bandwidth to do that little bit. So I, I do kind of think he would do something like that in addition to yeah. continuing. In to an write interview poems. that I read with Linda, she said that he was towards the end of his life, incredibly dedicated to craft. He would take mm. a bottle of wine up to his Macintosh and work until two o'clock in the morning and then wow. bed. But he was on as strict of a schedule as possible to be a writer, wow. is, you know, and I think that goes to what Kevin was saying earlier about how age may have changed him as well. But mm. I don't, I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's a degree of myth making that, hides the craft yeah right yeah. right because you can't yeah. look yeah this stuff isn't supposed to look as though it's right. spent hours right. crafting it right it's supposed to he's kind of a drunken rock and tour poet figure yeah and i think when you ha having listened to this episode of art of darkness have now been exposed to some of the early poems it puts the later stuff in a different context yeah so go, wait a minute this is a guy who can do that but then he chooses to do this other thing let's right. look at the whole picture right. I, I do have strategic. I'm gonna it is and I will add another topic to the after dark I'm gonna <laughs> add a topic because I've got it in one of these books and I, I I'll share it for patreon uh it's when he got his Apple computer oh <laughs> when, when, let's read about when Bukowski got his computer I'd like to see the apple you know how they do those apple commercials or the apple ads just like he's getting pissed off at it some in some way kicking it this piece of shit yeah, yeah. that'd be great porn boot well, on it yeah yeah so here we go it's we're gonna come back in a little bit for Patreon for the after dark we do this for every episode we're gonna talk about the editorial controversy for his posthumous writing we're going to talk about meeting R. Crumb, the great comic artist. We're going to talk about the FBI file. We're going to talk about his love of cats. And we're going to get a poem about cats. And we're, and we're going to talk about his computer, the computer okay. that he got. So we're going to All go right. big. All right. And uh, what do you, you, you're both writers, right? What do you think about this, uh, this piece of advice really quickly? Don't try. What do you think, Jason? Is that good advice or bad advice? I think he goes back to it again and again in its poetry. I think he's right in the sense that so many people get in their own way to creating. And if you're trying to be a writer, then that keeps you from being a writer. A writer writes, they don't try at the act of writing. 
And I think that's really what what he's getting at there, because there are several later poems or poems that he writes in the 70s that he goes back to that well and tells people that's his advice to all the things you know, which is interesting I mean, because he's he's not an MFA guy, right? Right. We talked about this. He's he's he wrote and learned to write through writing. So like thinking about it, intellectualizing it, making it a precious object, that's de rigueur to him. It's right. it, it's it's due. It's due. Right. Yeah. Cosign, yeah. Brad. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he, he's clearly not saying he's clearly not saying one way you could interpret it, which is like almost like don't bother. Right. Would be that's not what he's saying. He's speaking on a deeper level about like sort of where the mute how I would say it would be like how how do you access the muse? Well, you can't you can't preen too hard. You can't beg the muse. But you can, like he said in that thing, and th- I mean, this is, I'll tell you what, like I, I, from depending on your definition of the words, I try my ass off writing, but a lot of it looks like me sitting right here, just doing this. Right. And then eventually, yeah. you know, I see that fly moving on the his, wall and I'm like, eyes around. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's okay. Now I can put that in and, you know, hours can pass that way. And am I trying? I, I don't know. I'm. I decided to sit in the room for an amount of time, I guess. That was the trying. The trying came before almost, right? Mm. Was it Faulkner who said, don't be a writer, be writing? I think he might have. Somebody's, yes. It said sort of like, don't posture, right? Don't be like, um, you know. Don't don't be saying I'm working on my novel, be working on it. Working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Right. I mean, it's it's also, hmm. I, I, I didn't know about his, the funeral being, Excuse me, the funeral rites being a, a Buddhist ceremony that adds actually another dimension to it. To, to that, his wife, who who decided, uh, who knows how much he has subscribed to the sort of tenets of Buddhism, but her just putting that on the headstone and doing the rites that adds a, a whole zazen quality to it that I hadn't really thought about before. He says at the end of that great documentary, born into this, that when he died, his face was as smooth as a baby's. Really. Even after all of that, all of the scars and everything. Yeah. Wow. We're going to come back on the After Dark with the great Jason Gallagher. Brad Kelly will be there. We're going to talk more Bukowski. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. And before I send you both on your way, I just want to, one of you had better come back drunk. (laughs) (laughs) How much time? How much? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Don't try. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.